Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I am your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. How you doing this weekend or this morning? This morning. You know what went through my head because <clears throat> we're, we're up so high in this building? Uh-huh. I was looking at the elevator and the numbers going up and the thought, that thought that you don't want to have in an elevator crossed my mind. Like, what if this falls? <laughs> what if this just stops going up and decides to plummet down? And I went... Get that out of my head. Get yeah. that out of my head. It's like, this is Almost not helpful. At this, this is not helpful at Stop this moment. Stop thinking this, Manila. <laughs> you have to be on air soon and be happy. Yeah. We were talking about the uh, movies that we were watching over the weekend. I have been a lazy bum this weekend. But I did get the opportunity to catch up on Batman, Spider-Man. I see. I didn't even know those were out already. I knew that they were working on it. Yeah. I just didn't know they were out. You missed nothing with Spider-Man. Really? They have been torching those films. I, I was going to say the last several were like. Tobey Maguire was the best Spider-Man ever, and it, I, look, that's my own personal choice. I'll, I'll own that. The All fight right. when he got into a fight with, I believe it was Liz, not Lizard, but it was one. Oh, the Goblin, and the Goblin beat the living stuffing out of Tobey Maguire. Like it, it was one of those beatings where the superhero is getting beat so bad you're like, oh my god, this is rough to watch. Now he wins eventually. Kills Green Goblin, but it is painful to watch. This these days, they don't allow that. They would never oh. allow Spider-Man to take a beating like that. I don't think so. I mean, because one, he's a child. He's like 17 years old. Toby McGuire was at very least. Don't they ever like let the character grow up? I didn't follow Spider-Man very much. Well, Marvel does. I was gonna say, I thought yeah. they let at some point let Spider-Man be an adult. They did, because Marvel has a certain continuity with it. But when they first got to Spider-Man, he was very young. I mean, yeah. if you remember, like Tony Stark, like he was a teeny bopper, and so Tony Sparks was basically encouraging and mentoring him and everything else in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, hence why he had to be raised by what? What is it, Uncle Ben and Aunt? Well, in this one, Aunt May. Aunt May. Aunt May. Um, Batman was interesting. I, I didn't. Robin Pattinson, the one who's played Twilight, was playing Batman. And I was like, oh, what in the As world? A half wolf? No, no, he was a vampire. He was a vampire in Twilight. Um, but, oh, that's right. But it works, believe it or not. It's like an emo Batman. It's like the second year that Batman has been doing the Batman stuff. And he is, there's artistic stuff. Like he's like, I am vengeance. Or like, I am the oh, darkness. Oh, he put on the voice? Oh, man. Yes, he put on the voice. And there's even this monologue. Do you remember Watchmen where um, Rorschach was walking through the streets and he was like, the world is overflowing. It was like, and, you know, it was like, what is that? All of the slick talkers look at me and I say, no. <laughs> like, oh is that, that, that monologue. Batman has a monologue that, like, going into the thing where he's like, I am darkness. He was like, when they well, flash that. It's Robert. It's Robert Pattinson, but I it works. Maybe I won't let him grow up in my head that I think of him as these, like, th these Twilight movies yeah. and these teenage girls just swooning all over him. I can't think of him as like a Batman. An adult, right? Yeah, this tortured soul of a Batman that's going out beating criminals and everything else. But I swear it works. If you think of him, Tenet. Think of him as a character for Tenet. Because in that one, he wasn't this kind of teeny bopper thing. He was like a spy and he was a great, great character in Tenet. Oh, how did you not see Tenet? How did you not see Tenet? You must go immediately and watch Tenet. i commercials in my head and I can't, I cannot... 
Oh, you must go and watch Tenet. It's so good. It's so good. But the but he's there's one scene in this where he is there's just pitch black, just darkness. It's like through an alley, and you see, you hear steps, 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 and it's just still pitch black. And all of the criminals are like looking into the darkness, and then all of a sudden you see this presence like slowly emerging from the darkness, as if Batman was darkness this really himself. Really pale face emo <laughs> Batman. Well, he has on black makeup. <laughs> so oh, you, okay. <laughs> is, did he get jacked for this movie? He's like, no, and that was some of the really? criticism for it. So they, he's a skinny Batman? No, well, the suit makes him look thick, but he didn't, like, it wasn't like Wolverine, where Wolverine right, got, right. like, a piece of iron Hugh for Jackson the film. Just, yeah, he just got insanely thick. His wife was like, he's 50 well, even, years old. He even was, Ben like, Affleck did. Same thing, yeah. He got really he got jacked ripped for, for that. It. Robert Pattinson did not no, get jacked for he, it. He, kept his skinny but hipster boy look. He was very aggressive. Okay. He could beat the devil out of people like nobody's business. He was a little okay. bit hyper-reactive. Well, that's something to watch. Okay. I would, it, watch, it was, I would I, watch it. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. We, we it binged on Ozark. It said goodbye to Ozark. Now, that was the one where the guy was, like, dealing with crack or something like that, or his family Just was on the run. Dr- different drugs. Yeah, he was, like, laundering money for the Mexican drug cartels. Oh, I see. Because okay. he was, like, a brilliant accountant-type yeah. guy, so he used his smarts. He, he somehow stumbled into that world. Yeah. You know, this unassuming guy. Yeah. Right? And I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it, but Jason Bateman does such a great job and Laura Linney, great cast. Yeah. The cast was fantastic. Um, but we got into this during COVID and and they talk about kind of, you know, they show the, the underbelly of the FBI. Yeah. And my husband looks to me because he knows I've been a reporter for so long and he's like, they do stuff like that, Is don't that they? That works. <laughs> the FBI, they do stuff like that, huh? And I'm like, yeah, they do. They make deals. And you never hear about it. some people get these, you know, exemption, like we're non-prosecution deals. Yeah. And some of these drug busts you see are literally created for TV. I said, yeah, that stuff actually happens. And they have consultants that help write these scripts. Uh-huh. All these big budget shows and films, they always have consultants, yeah. right? Of like of people really from that industry. And I said, so where do you think they get those plot lines from? They have consultants, probably a real-life former FBI agent. Yeah. So where, where do you think these FBI agents go, you know, when they enter the bureau when they're like 26, 27, 28, let's say 30? Yeah. They spend 25 years. They're only 55. Yeah. You think they just fade off into the sunset and go golf somewhere in Florida? Get more work. No, they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars to consult for these films and TV shows and telling about their real life experiences and consulting and saying, oh, you know, an agent would do this. He or she would walk like this, talk like this. And they made tons of money just hanging out on the set with celebrities. Interesting. Yeah. So when I saw this stuff, because I've covered these stories, these drug cartels, these busts, I thought, man, this is real. Yeah. (laughs) This is so real. Very cool. I'm going to have to check that out. I saw the first season. Yeah, I saw the first season. I don't think I saw the second season. So I might check that out. But I'm not happy with the ending. That's all I'll say. Uh-oh. Oh, like a Game of Thrones ending where everybody's yes. like, what the hell what is, is this? With all these shows, <laughs> just all the writers are like, you know what? We're done. Bye-bye. <laughs> or the Sopranos. It's like, well, what the hell is this? How does this end like this? How do you end like... Just, all right. Headlines. All right. Let's do headlines. All right. Let's, let's do headlines. <laughs> that was part of the national headlines. That's why I had to do that. It was 
the ending of Ozark. All right, let's let's head over to domestic headlines here. All right, so far, nearly half of all Americans disapprove of the way President Joe Biden has been handling the Ukraine crisis, according to a new poll. Biden's overall disapproval rate stands at 52%. Mind you, this is disapproval, 52%. That's according to a Washington Post and ABC News poll. While 47% of Americans disapprove of the president's handling of the Ukraine issue in particular, as compared to 42% who actually approve, over 40% of respondents said they strongly disapprove of President Biden's job performance. The worst ratings are on the issue of inflation. Surprise, surprise. With 68% of Americans saying they disapprove and only 28% saying they do approve. Then infamous never-Trumper Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger has introduced a new AUMF, Authorization for Use of Military Force Resolution, that would allow President Biden to send troops to Ukraine. Our troops to Ukraine. If, under the provision, if Russia were to, quote, use chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons against Ukraine. The proposed AUMF, similar in scope to resolutions by Congress giving successive presidents the authority to attack Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya and fight Washington's 20-plus year war on terror is the first new resolution of its kind since 2013. So real smart, Adam Kinzinger. Then former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard argued that former President Barack Obama, not Joe Biden, is actually behind the federal effort to establish a disinformation governance board, the new DGB, Ministry of Truth. She says, quote, Biden is just a front man. She tweeted that on Sunday. Quote, Obama, on April 21st, social media's social media censors don't go far enough. So the government needs to step in to do the job. There's video of that, folks, if you haven't seen it, that President Obama was talking somewhere and he actually said those words for real. It came out of his mouth. She then compared the planned DGB to Orwell's Ministry of Truth, one of the four ministries of the government of Oceania in 1984. And international news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said on Sunday that over $300 billion were stolen from Russia, the majority of which were payments for oil and gas supplies because energy giant Gazprom had to store the money in Western bank accounts. Quote, they wanted to punish Russia, so they stole it. That's Lavrov telling the Italian media set broadcaster explaining that, quote, money was stolen from us, over 300 billion. Most of the amount was received for oil and gas supplies. Lavrov noted that, quote, now we are offered to continue trading as before and the money will remain with them. Hmm. Then Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met just last night with U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who arrived in Kiev, saying, quote, I am grateful for the signal of strong support to Ukraine. Zelensky then awarded Nancy Pelosi with the 
Order of Princess Olga Award. Yeah, it's that, that's a thing there. That's a thing. Oh, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying. I guess that's some sort of a thing. Princess Olga Award. <laughs> so, okay, good, good on her. And I should also note that Nancy Pelosi, during that meeting, literally thanked Volodymyr Zelensky. She said, thank you for this war for democracy. Thank you for your war. Who says thank you for your war? Who says that? All right, then Iran's petroleum minister, Javed Alji, is currently on a trip to Venezuela, which will include visits to oil facilities and the signing of energy agreements between the two U.S.-sanctioned countries. That's according to Bloomberg. Both parties are set to sign energy cooperation agreements today. And also going back to Ukraine, Zelensky has also told Greece's ERT network that he is grateful to the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other, quote, volunteers, whoever they may be, I don't think he actually knows, um, asserted his beliefs that there are, quote, almost no calls for radicalism in Ukraine. Now, he spoke in both Ukrainian and English during that media interview and said that back in 2014, quote, volunteers from different parts of the state united to defend Ukraine because the country did not have such a powerful army as it has today. Yeah, that's because the U.S. went in there and did a lot of training since 2014. In tech news, in an energy meeting on Friday, employees of, excuse me, an emergency meeting, (laughs) in an emergency meeting, the employees of Twitter, it was a freakout meeting is what it was. Uh, <laughs> the Twitter employees complained to CEO Parag Agrawal and the diversity officer, Delana Brand, that the incoming owner, Elon Musk, is allegedly, quote, an open homophobe and transphobe. They also allegedly expressed fears for their future with the company. This impromptu get-together was reported on Saturday by Insider, which claimed to have obtained leak audio, leaked audio of those proceedings. According to the news site, Agrawal fielded questions from staff concerned that they could lose their jobs amid rumors that Musk is planning on slashing executive pay. Oh, no! All their cushy, multi-six-figure jobs. Oh, no, how are they going to afford their luxury apartments in downtown San Francisco? Their doorman needs to get paid, too. That is going to be so difficult for them. So difficult. You, you need to you need to shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, who wants to go to Trader Joe's? <laughs> Whole Foods are bust, man. And then Earth science scientists are at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI Institute oh, yeah. suggested in a recent study to stop searching for biosignatures in the atmospheres of distant planets and focus on technological signs of advanced situation or civilizations rather as they may be found faster so yeah if you know maybe they left an old ham radio on the surface of mars well that's um what's his name um ah, i can't think of his name the gentleman from harvard but that's what he's doing i mean he's searching for tech like old he's tech. looking for tech i mean a more more for example right in his head that's i saw tech. a license plate with that yeah oh really like, did you? that was their actual license plate. a more more the and I, I was like oh my god i know what that is yeah 
So that in his head, that's what he's looking for. Tech signatures from ancient civilizations. His thought was, even if the civilization is not there, something should be left behind or something should be right. floating through space or something like that. Not to mention looking in our own atmosphere for that stuff. That Said he doesn't sense. accept that. Ah. Oh. That's why I said, bah. Because think about Seti it for wants, a moment. Seti wants biological proof. No, Seti wants are sending radio signals out in space. Oh, they're but, the ones pinging yeah. out to space. Right. Okay. And so Seti is like, oh, there's nothing here because we're sending radio signals out to space. Okay, what happens if something is here? Does it make Seti and its job perfunctory? It's like, so wait, you were looking all the way out there, you were pissing into the universe, and yet these guys were here? What were you doing all those years? Well, I mean, I guess that's the break here. They're they're butting heads here. Yeah. Because Seti, I guess they want to focus on, you know, the advancement that will be found, whatever will be found faster. Yes. Which yes. I, I get their point. I get their point. I get their point. I understand Listen, their point. We've been looking for like 50 years. Can we find something? <laughs> something? Some kind of proof, please? So I'm with them on that. And then in the business world, without Russian supplies, the European Union cannot simultaneously fill up members' underground gas storage facilities to prepare for next winter, you don't say, and continue to operate industry. That's according to Der Spiegel Business, citing conclusions of a leading German research institute. According to the Julich Research Center, a state-sponsored interdisciplinary institution, whose areas of expertise include energy and environment, cutting down on Russian gas, delivers deliveries by two-thirds, recently promised by EU officials, would force industrial enterprises to shut down for months at a time as UGS sites are filled up, as they are, there are simply no alternative sources for supply. Should have thought about that first. Uh, then this day in history... 1945, more than one million German soldiers officially surrendered to the Western Allies in Italy and Austria. Also 1945, World War II, Battle of Berlin ends as the Soviet Red Army takes Berlin and General Wiedling surrenders. 1949, Arthur Miller wins the Pulitzer Prize for Death of a Salesman. 1982, Falklands War, Argentine cruiser General Belgrano sunk by British submarine conqueror killing more than 350 men. In 2008, Cyclone Nargis makes landfall in Myanmar, killing over 130,000 people and leaving millions more homeless. In 2011, Osama bin Laden, the suspected mastermind of the September 11th attacks and the FBI's most wanted man, was killed by U.S. Special Forces in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And those are your headlines for Monday, May 2nd. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Nice. I got the drum beat. On point. Let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the soapbox segment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. 
If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Um, I have watched the media over the weekend, and it's amazing in the way that they've been presenting this news um, in regards to Ukraine. And on top of that, even adding the ministry of truth adds a certain level of ironic weirdness to all of this. I want to talk about self-conception, though. Um, what and how do people see themselves? Now, this is monstrously important. Understand how a person see themselves is going to, on some level, set the tone and tenor for how they engage the world. Their environment is going to change. There's going to be all sorts of situations that are adverse and advantageous to the individual. And how is that person going to deal with those situations. In my case, self-conception, what am I? Am I the plucky person with a potential illness that decides to go traveling the world? And is that this kind of, hey, this guy's courageous? Or is this particular individual delusional? Is this person not acknowledging certain limitations and everything associated with the position to which he finds himself? Which one is more true? When I was in my 30s, at that point, I had more surgeries than years on this planet. Many of those um, were life-threatening. And at the point where I hit 30, I had a failure of a transplant. Now, some people would look at this and say, okay, this is not a great situation. It was not a great situation. I decided to go traveling the world. And I jumped from country to country to country for months on end with the expectation that I had about seven months to go. My expectation was based on a failure proportional um, per month, it did not work that way. It went for two months. Nevertheless, still was able to make that traveling thing. Now, again, what is the self-conception of the individual? Is this person delusional or is this person plucky, intelligent, and is just able to mitigate certain limitations and willing to accept consequences on the other end to accomplish his objectives? Or is it both of those things? And I suspect it is both of those things depending upon the person who you're talking to and their own tolerance of that stuff. The reason I'm bringing in self-conception is because we in this country have a certain self-conception of ourselves. It comes out anytime we're engaging situations and problems and troubles. It comes out when we're engaging elements of the world. And it's, hey, this is taking place thousands of miles away, but we are the leaders of the globe. We are the indispensable nation, and we must get involved. It's this notion that when you look at yourself as being needing full-spectrum dominance around the globe. And what that means when you're engaging other countries that don't necessarily want to fall in line to that self-conception. What are we as a country, and how do we see ourselves? And how do we see ourselves in the context of the capabilities that we have to assert that vision of ourself? What I'm getting to is this notion that we are an aging, um, self-conscious empire that is basically being confronted on all fronts by a world that is no longer unipolar. And yet we're engaging that world as if that world is still unipolar. And the various countries are not necessarily accepting that. Also, to this, we have a president that has basically radically failed on pretty much all fronts. Failed in Afghanistan, an embarrassing, embarrassing failure in Afghanistan. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lost from COVID, an agenda 
that would not go through, can't go through. And even now, when they're trying to push Joe Manchin, it becomes very clear, considering Joe Manchin has jumped 17 points in West Virginia, that Joe Manchin is not going to budge. And one issue after the next, this administration has utterly and completely failed. And that administration that has basically failed on the home front and is expecting an electoral wipeout has basically put all of its eggs in one basket, that basket being keeping Ukraine in the orbit of the West. Even if that means Ukraine gets completely destroyed and exhausted and basically balkanized in a war that Ukraine should have never been in in the first place. Understand what I'm saying here. The U.S. president is getting closer and closer to the brink of oblivion and is basically identifying himself, his administration, and the responsibilities, quote unquote, of NATO and associating those things with Ukraine. Think back for a moment. History doesn't necessarily rhyme or doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. Think about Vietnam and how that war basically ended up. Initially, the U.S. gets involved. Okay, same thing here. It's a civil war, which is one of the key points that it continuously gets ignored in mainstream media. Again, that's something that basically happened in Vietnam that's happening here, even though we ignore that. If you notice, the mainstream media doesn't bring up the fact that it's a civil war. They only talk about it in the context of Ukrainians and Russians. The reality of it is, before any of this stuff sparked off, eight years had gone by before Russia got involved. The Minsk agreements wasn't taking the Donbass region out or the Donbass republics out of Ukraine. It was going to make them independent within the context of Ukraine. This wasn't a situation where Russia had got involved in this conflict immediately. It took eight years. It was an eight-year, give or take, civil war for all intents and purposes. The reason I'm pointing that out is because this is something similar to what happened in Vietnam. We ingratiated ourselves into a conflict. We initially sent helpers, minders, people who could basically advise on that potential military conflict. And when it became clear that the advisors, the weapons, the help wasn't enough, eventually, troops, eventually, the identity of the U.S. president gets so enraptured in the conflict that extricating himself will basically look like a failure. And what does this mean for all of those NATO countries that are basically pushing Zelensky to continue this war? They've already reported in Western media that at this point, many of those NATO nations don't want Zelensky to basically stop. You had initially Zelensky putting out a peace deal, and then what happens? That peace deal gets retracted. And all of a sudden, coincidentally, $33 billion, the countries are trying to send even more and more weapons. This is not going according to plan. The economic war didn't work. The ruble is still there. I'm not saying it's not going to have damage at some point, but from the standpoint of damage, inflation has gone through the roof in a way that is eating through European countries and the United States. This is not going according to plan. And when I keep asking the question, how much is Ukraine worth to you? Is it really worth what you are encountering right now and what you will encounter later? I'm just talking about the average American. Is it that important to keep Ukraine in your orbit, a country that you cannot find on the map, that you didn't even know was an issue going on for the eight years up until the point where all of this stuff hit the mainstream media? Do you really want President Biden in this close, this enraptured into this conflict where his identity, his political capital in and of itself gets wrapped into what happens in Ukraine? They are making farcical, farcical objectives that will never be met. 
And they are talking about this war lasting for years. This is the framing that these guys are in right now. They're passing a Lend-Lease program. And understand what the Lend-Lease was. This was something that was used in the Second World War and preceded us getting enmeshed in that war. Is this what you really want with a nuclear-powered nation? We are in a proxy war with Russia. This is disturbing, and we really need to accommodate history on this and to what may take place and the level of disaster that could befall these political actors that are taking actions that are not in the best interests of their constituents. Manila, this is disturbing to me, and it's disturbing on so many levels. Adding in the Ministry of Truth basically tries to prevent any ability to criticize what the government is doing on this very specific front. They would not come out and point out lies from the U.S. government. That wouldn't happen. Nor would they abide people basically saying, hey, this looks like a problem. You're basically passing a lend lease for Ukraine. What are you doing? You're sending advisors to Ukraine. What are you doing? Why are you putting so much political capital into this very specific issue? And if it becomes clear that that is not enough to win it, which it is not going to be enough to win it, are you going to be able to pull back? It's that part. And I get to this feeling that the answer is going to be no. And that is disturbing to me. Well, the whole point of this exercise in futility is not to, quote, protect Ukraine or protect world democracy. The whole point of this exercise in Ukraine in the U.S. response is to weaken Russia. Because Russia and the other BRICS nation, you may have heard of this little place called China. Um, Russia and China have really not only built up closer ties in the, the last five years, but they have really become economic powerhouses in the 21st century. And the U.S., the deep state, I mean, I don't, I don't know if someone like AOC has a grasp on that, but... I mean, those are those are the people that are there for the dog and pony shows, the AOCs, the Adam Kinzingers. Those are, are just front men and women, right? It's the permanent Washington people whose faces you never see. They're non-elected officials that have decided that this was a slow creep that had to be established. Probably, I would go back to the 90s in the Clinton era. And it's been a slow creep. So I would go back further than the eight years that nobody was paying attention to the eastern region, to the Donbass region of Ukraine. And this whole point is that they saw the rise coming. They saw the Chinese making nice with Russia. They saw uh, immediately how Saudi Arabia responded in the past year after, after the Biden administration won. They saw the response, the tea leaves, they read the tea leaves and it said, all right, I guess now we got to bring out the guns. So who's going to fire them? The Ukrainians. Let's throw money at them. And what happened was the U.S. government gave more money easier, more easily to the Ukrainian government. Remember this, folks, than they gave to you during the COVID pandemic when they shut everything down state by state by state. There was more money given faster to the Ukrainians right now than they were willing to give you of your own money that was loaned out to the U.S. government because they shut down the IRS during the first year of the pandemic. So they borrowed your money 
for free. And now (laughs) those refunds still haven't been processed. Now it's just going to Ukraine. So if you haven't seen, if you had any issues with the IRS two years ago, just understand that this is free loans that you have given to the U.S. government and the U.S. government is now funneling to Ukraine. So whether you support war, you support Ukraine, you support democracy, as they say, just understand that that is where your money is going. That is where your refunds are going. This is where your money for your schools, housing, feeding the food insecure, that's where it's going. It's going to Ukraine because it's not about democracy. It's about weakening Russia. And they said that quiet part out loud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Think about that. Like, that's something initially, oh, this is just a war with Ukraine. Oh, we're going to help Ukraine. Then it becomes our job is to weaken Russia in this conflict. Oh, that reminds me. I need to look up what the Princess Olga Award is. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, is it like an Emmy? Did Nancy do a great, you know, she put up a great spiel? I have no idea. I don't know what the Princess Olga Award is. I know she won some kind of award, but I, I hadn't thought to look it up. Yeah. I knew she won some award. I, did, I didn't know it was actually called the Princess Olga Award. So random. So random. I'm, I'm going to look that up while we talk to Elijah. Yeah, let's do that. And then, and then we'll, we'll see what he thinks about that. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to bring on our guest. We have the one and only Elijah Magnier. He's a veteran journalist and war correspondent that has covered several conflicts across the world and is one of our favorite guests. Elijah, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. No, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to get your take just as a rundown of what is taking place on the ground over the weekend. Could you get us up to date on the events that are taking place or the major events that are taking place in Russia and Ukraine? Well, it seems that the Russians are advancing more in the south and in the east uh, in the Ukrainian territory. And now uh, the U.S. and NATO states are kind of panicking because they asking, although they supply more weapons to Ukraine, but they're asking uh, for ceasefire, the possibility to stop the uh, uh, military operation. On the other hand, the U.S. is making sure that is involving more Germany that has been hesitant from the first beginning of this war, uh, unwilling to create animosity with Russia as a, a natural partner to Europe and uh, resisting to the U.S. Uh, influence to uh, um, just accept to stop the supply of gas from Russia. That is impossible. Uh, Europe cannot live without the Russian gas at least for a year or two. Uh, Russia said, that, uh, the Ukra- uh, Germany said, that the size of damage is going to be around $220 billion uh, if they stop the Russian gas. The, uh, the answer comes from the uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense establishing 
a military operational room in Germany, uh, more or less telling Germany you can't get away with it. We're going to gather 40 nations, all the generals are going to be here, organizing the support to Ukraine in order to damage Russia as much as possible, regardless of the damage to the Ukrainian economy and infrastructure. However, I, I can't see that move is very positive because in Syria, we've seen 80 nations gathering together in two operational rooms, one in Turkey, another one in Jordan, uh, and uh, supporting the jihadists, training the jihadists, supporting al-Qaeda, supplying weapons to uh, battalions that they finish training and they join al-Qaeda, uh, which Hillary Clinton said that the people who are uh, fighting us, we have funded and trained. Uh, they're doing exactly the same now in Ukraine uh, by establishing this operational room in Germany and pushing Europe. Today in Brussels, there is a meeting here by the European uh, leaders to discuss more sanctions on Russia, which means more shooting of uh, Europeans in their own foot and uh, paying the price of all the uh, sanctions that are imposing on Russia, basically they're imposing on themselves. Uh, we have uh, Hungary and Slovakia, they have no access to sea, no way they can live without the Russian gas. We have uh, the uh, uh, Poland and Bul uh, Bulgaria who said, oh, we don't care about the Russian gas, we don't want it anymore, we don't want to pay in ruble, but we're getting the Russian gas from Germany. Right, <laughs> right. Germany is getting now five times more supply of gas than usual, uh, which is uh, a real mockery just because they want to please the Americans and say to the Western European, look, we are in East Europe. We abide by the rules of the United States. Why don't you follow? So suddenly we have countries like Latvia and Lithuania with, and Macedonia with 180 a million inhabitants, so 1 million and 80,000 uh, inhabitants and or 2 million inhabitants dictating their will to 85 million in Germany or 65 million in France and saying you have to follow us. How are they able to do that? Because if you think about it, they're paying more for that. Like, <clears throat> meaning for them to give this kind of show of, oh, we're not going to use Russian gas. We're just going to use it from Germany. And it's not even, we're not using Russian gas. We're not paying for Russian gas. We're just going to use it from Germany and we're going to buy it from Germany. But the price of gas after Bulgaria and Hungary, not Hungary, Bulgaria and uh, Poland decided not to basically use it, went up. It went through the roof. So the Russian coffers, I was reading this earlier, like yesterday and this morning, the Russian coffers have basically increased because of the amount of gas that these guys are buying. And they're buying more than what they would typically buy because they're trying to fill their coffers for later. And so it's like, even though the value might have gone down on some level, the amount of money that they've been getting from it is basically skyrocketed. Poland is going to have to basically pay more for gas for doing it this way. And yet they're willingly doing it. How is Europe able to afford this kind of increase in gas prices? I mean, this stuff adversely affects economies and everything else. Mean meanwhile, don't forget the Europeans are also paying themselves more for uh, petrol. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that out if, if a lot of these EU states, like Germany, who's the de facto leader of the EU, if they are, if they are raking in the dough by being the middleman, 
why are they still passing on petrol prices to the consumer? That's a very good point. I'm going to explain it as much as I can. So, first of all, the uh, American liquid gas costs 40% more than the Russian gas. And that's one. Two, we don't have terminals adequate for the uh, liquid gas to support all the factories, the industry, the energy in the whole continent. That doesn't exist and needs several years to be built. And it costs a lot of money when we have just a pipeline coming from Russia in five different directions, supplying the south in Italy, France, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and the whole of uh, Eastern Europe. Even Ukraine is getting its gas today still from Russia because Russia is showing some soft approach toward the gas, saying, I don't want to uh, cut the gas. I don't want to weaponize the gas. I just want to to be paid in ruble because you're trying to cripple my economy. Now, why they are doing this? The answer is here. Since 1096, the first crusade in Europe, the Europeans have been uh, colonialists, and they've colonized starting from uh, Portugal, France, uh, England, uh, Germany. All these countries have been colonizing uh, different countries in Europe, in Africa, in the Americas, in other parts of the world. Now, after the Second World War, it's the U.S. that has colonized Europe. Today, Europe is under the not only influence, but the complete control of the United States of America to the point that there is no more a European will to act to the benefit of the European citizens. They're even not acting to the benefit of the U.S. citizens because the U.S. citizens are suffering as much as us. All the money is going to Ukraine. All the money that we have to pay, we're paying it as a difference of prices that the Americans are spending it on weapons to Ukraine, not to feed the Ukrainian people, not on social security or health security to the Americans in the first degree. We're all suffering today paying an excessive price because the U.S. wants to keep its hegemony and dominance and colonizing Europe. Why they're doing it? The answer is simple. There is no way to say no. The only person who said no was uh, the Chancellor Merkel in Germany. She has been, uh, she ended her terms. Now we have a new uh, Chancellor Schulz with the Green Party that are completely surrendering to the Americans. We have France that is not, not in a position to stand and face the Americans today because President Macron is weaker than before. Second, he has the uh, National Assembly election of 577 members on the 12th to the 19th of June. He will not have the majority, so he will be in a weak position to face the Americans. Therefore, with Germany and France out of the equation, what do you expect? There is no more will to confront the Americans who are piling up more nuclear we, uh, weapons in Europe and who are uh, gathering operational rooms, forcing Europe to deliver weapons to Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are hit on the head. They're losing, they've lost Kherson, that is more or less 28,000 
square kilometer that is bigger than Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, the Netherlands together. And they losing more and more territory. And the Russians are saying to the Ukrainian, come and sign the agreement on neutrality. On the other hand, when we see that the Americans are not giving up, we hear the opposition leader, Svetlana uh, Tikhanovskaya, saying that I met with the Secretary of State, Secretary Antony Blinken, who promised me to assist journalists and activists with enough technology to start a new color revolution in Belarusia. So things are getting worse, not better. Uh, Elijah, I want to... I want to play a clip for you, and this is of Noam Chomsky, but before I get to the clip, one more question on this. I've been hearing reports that the Kiev government has said something like they could accept or losing Donbass region is not necessarily indicative of losing the war. Have you heard reports like this, and do you think that's true? I mean, with all the weapon systems and everything else that are basically being dumped into Ukraine, it doesn't necessarily seem those weapon systems are going to be able to get to the areas that Ukraine would need those, not to mention training and everything else that's involved. Um, in that. And if those can't get to that particular region, and that seems to be the region where most of the focus is taking place in the east, then what does that mean in regards to that region going to Russia? And is that the end of the war in those terms? Meaning, is that what it takes in order to force a peace agreement? Or do you think that at this point, the war is going to continue beyond the loss of that region? First of all, it is not the decision of the Ukrainian or the Ukrainian president since ever, since 2014. We heard the President, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying, speaking in the name of the Ukrainians and saying, we can accept the ceasefire. So the decision is in Washington, not in Kiev. Secondly, the Minsk agreement in 2014 caused the killing of 13,000 inhabitants of Donbass region by this government of Ukraine that was bombing and killing its own citizens. Third, there is more or less between 70 to 80 percent of the entire region is under the control of the Ukrainian separatists of Donbass. So if Kiev wants it or not, Donbass is gone, is going to be independent and is going to be uh, ruled by the Ukrainian in Donbass who will decide and protect their region when their government failed to do so. So when they have a failed state in their area and they have their government killing them, responsible of their killing, then they will be uh, independent and they ask their support of Russia was gladly supporting them. Third, what Kiev is willing now, which is Washington basically, is to limit the damage because Russia said, I am taking the south. Now that means Ukraine will have no more access to the sea when they lose Mariupol, and then if they lose Odessa. By losing Odessa or closing the sea or isolating Odessa, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian economy already suffered 47%, will be completely on the floor. Now, the Americans or the Europeans will support Ukraine? Absolutely not. They're supporting only the supply of weapons to, for the last Ukrainian to fight and kill as many Russians as possible even if there will no longer be a Ukrainian army. That is the objective. If Donbass uh, is taken away, it is going to be taken away with or without the will of Kiev. Is Kiev going to accept to be a neutral country? Is Kiev going to stop being under the diktat of the U.S.? Is Kiev going to stop 
been a base for the supply of NATO weapons and the training of NATO on its territory to cause to create a, a problem for Russia and cross the red line. I mean, we had the Americans saying Chinese, the Chinese in the Solomon Island, 9,800 kilometers away from the America, is crossing a red line. So what can we say about Russia and Ukraine? I want to play a clip. And this is Noam Chomsky. And he is going to say something that is shocking coming from Noam Chomsky. But I got to be honest, I've um, mused about stuff myself. Let's play the clip. Well, there is fortunately one statesman in the United States and Europe who has laid out a person of a high political figure who has made a very sensible statement about how you can solve the crisis, namely by facilitating negotiations instead of undermining them and uh, moving towards establishing some kind of accommodation in Europe. Okay, let's play the second one. So going back to the one Western statesman, he didn't mention all of this, but he suggested something similar. Move towards negotiations and diplomacy instead of escalating the war. Uh, try to see if you can bring about an accommodation, uh, which would be roughly along these lines. Uh, his name is Donald J. Trump. Elijah, what are your thoughts about that? Is Trump the statesman um, in this situation that is basically willing to come to the table in this, whereas the government currently has been basically subverting any level of peace negotiations? What are your thoughts? I think Trump was the only one in the United States saying that I will not fight Russia and I don't want to stop uh, stand against Russia and I don't want to uh, trigger a third world war because everything indicates that the world is going really toward provoking Russia further and further. However, I'm very confident that there is no third world war because the use of nuclear weapon is not um, useful at this point, and there is nothing that Russia cannot handle without recurring to this kind of weapons. Donald Trump, yes, is the one who is not willing to fight Russia. However, is Donald Trump going to be in control? I mean, we heard Donald Trump saying, I want to pull out of Syria, and we heard saying there are 200 men only when other U.S. officials said, we lie to our president, and there are more than 900 men. So who is in control of the U.S.? I think the warmongers are in control of the U.S. Whoever president is going to lead the country, because at the end of the day, they want to sell more weapons. They want to impose their hegemony by all means. If a president comes and say, I don't want to do that. I mean, I've read an article written by Bill Clinton saying, everybody in the U.S. told me not to expand NATO. All the ambassadors, all the U.S. ambassador in Moscow, the analyst, my closest advisor, and yet he went for it. So is the voice of the reason that prevail in the U.S.? I don't think so. It's the voice of weapons that prevails in the U.S. That's a very good point, because while the U.S. economy shrank, according to The New York Times, the, this slight contraction was a good thing because it wasn't a, a bigger contraction. Um, and then they're comparing it to, obviously, European contraction and, you know, the pricing of things there. And they say, oh, well, things are not so bad here. 
Well, the truth is the only thing, the only industry this this recovery from COVID pandemic has been good for has been the weapons manufacturers. <laughs> so because of this war in Ukraine that has been ginned up by the U.S. State Department since 2014 after the the uh, the the coup and the Maidan, uh, the deaths and, and horrible events in Maidan, that the, the State Department refuses to admit when the, the evidence is right before our very eyes. And they tell us now with our Ministry of Truth, tell me, Elijah, um, being, being European, do, do you guys have something comparable to the Ministry of Truth there? <laughs> no, unfortunately, we don't. And um, we used to have value or believe we have value that we are a country where we like the law to be respected and where we like international law, and we like to the institution to take over and impose law on everybody without distinctions. I think that was a dream, and it is a, a big lie, because the truth is what the leaders want us to hear, and the truth is what, how they are submitted to others. And I think, if I may say something, and please don't take it personal, I think you are the one behind what's happening in the U.S. because you in the media, you're not doing enough to raise the awareness of the population of what their leaders are doing. I don't think the normal American citizen accept to go and kill other citizens around the world in the, in the fake name of freedom and democracy. That is a mockery when a president 15 times said, I love dictators, when presidents or prime ministers who are elected democratically uh, receive a coup d'etat and are removed or assassinated because they don't fit with the U.S. specifications. And I think the media, the lack of uh, honesty, I'm not accusing you, but I'm talking about the media in general, the lack of honesty of the media, and it should be also interest from the audience, and the American people who are more interested in what's happening around the world and what their leaders are doing, how they are missing up with the food and security of Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, Russia, Ukraine, Belarusia, Georgia, and you name it, any country you want, all that is the U.S. behind it. And I don't want to sound like uh, someone who supports conspiracy theory. Go to Google inform yourself, help people to raise their awareness what their leaders are doing and how no international law is respected. Well, I will I will say this real quickly, Elijah, as much as there are people in the media like myself, like Jamal, the number of people that uh, worked at my previous employer at RT, we, our voices, because we don't carry the narrative, our voices get stamped out. And now that Joe Biden has implemented the the Disinformation Governance Board, as it's called, but everybody else calls it the Ministry of Truth. Um, that's going to be even harder to to get the the full truth out there. And Google is in bed with the Biden administration, and the laws for the internet usage in Europe are very different than they are here. Here, they they basically suppress your search, and they show you what. They want to show you. It doesn't matter what you ask Google. And even at this point, DuckDuckGo, uh, they show you what they want to show you, what they want you to see. So 
you know, there are a number, you, you, you would personally have to know how to look out and, and source out the information yourself which is defeats the purpose of having a search engine, I think. Because so, <laughs> the search engine, engine is supposed to tell you. I fully agree, really. You're really uh, spot on on this. And I think the hope of the people in Europe and in the Middle East and Latin America, that one day there will be an American embassy in Washington to create a real coup against the Americans. Elijah? Thank you for this, my man. Elijah Magnier, he's a veteran journalist and war correspondent that has covered several conflicts across the world. And of course, he is a regular here at Fault Lines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere floating in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Right on. Appreciate Elijah Magnier for coming on. Always appreciate those conversations. Yeah, it's always great to hear the European view yeah. of our country. It's always a little weird to hear because it a little we're, bit. we're always spouting off about, oh, Europe and oh, the UK or whatever. But it's, it's a totally different thing. You get spun on your head when you hear the Europeans tell, yeah. tell us what they think of us. And yes. you're like... Ooh, that stings. It's weird. Like, I mean, when you're talking to somebody, let's say from China or Russia or from some of the yeah. other foreign countries, Africa, yeah, you get a different tape. You definitely like, get a different tape. Ouch. Yeah. That hurts. I remember the first time I was in Israel um, or Egypt, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, etc. And you're looking at the news and it's showing stuff that's taking place in Israel that you would never see in the United States. And you're sitting there like, wow. This was before I was into politics, right? So I'm sitting there like, Whoa, they're destroying those people's plantation. That's the way they live and everything else. Now, when you get into Israel, they would give you an explanation of why that's taking place. They always want to engage into a conversation, especially with Americans, which gets in weird. Don't believe your lying eyes. That's not what you saw. Exactly. What you saw was XYZ for freedom. Yes, I remember. I, but look, to be fair, they would have those conversations with you, though, more so than they would have them here. And I remember I was on the bus with a guy. We were going to a bungee jumping site in Nepal. Again, we're in my 30s. No in kidding. Nepal? Yeah. I, it's Because remember, like, I, I started traveling. Um, when my kidney failure failed, I started traveling. I basically said, screw it. Because I'm jumping thought, around the globe. You thought, you know what? If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out with some memories. Well, no. I, I, I figured, all right, I got seven months before this thing fails complete. <gasps> that was the way I processed it. So you thought you had a timer? More or less, yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, at that point, I was committed to going. Coming back wasn't an option. Things got extremely bad, and I was still going. But at that particular time frame, in the bus, having a conversation with the guy, and it's like he heard me talking to somebody else about traveling through certain areas. Oh, I know what I said. I said Palestine. And he was like, what's Palestine? Where's Palestine? What's that? What's that? And this gets into this conversation on the bus for, like, hours. Yeah. He eventually admits, okay, we do certain things that come out poorly in the way that it's perceived outside of Israel. 
We do have reasons for doing it. And it's oh, like... It was an Israeli guy. Oh, yeah. He was Israeli. And he would admit. He said, look, I lived in some of those areas. Oh. He says, um, I knew some of those people. And grudgingly, after hours of conversation, when he realized, I'm not attacking him. I'm not going after him. I don't even pay attention to the stuff like talking about at that time frame. He was like, okay, fair enough. We yeah, do those things sometimes. This that comes is across before forward. all the tribalism in the world and like everyone started hating everybody on social media. Yeah. So back then... You know, if we're talking even as little as five years ago, like pre-Trump election. Yeah. That was when everybody went nuts. Yes. They went extreme hard left, hard right. They went deranged. Right. And people were just deranged and conversation ended five years ago. Yeah. So, you know, if it's pre-five years ago, that makes sense. For him, it was a good conversation. I mean, and even like after the jump, I was in really bad shape trying to get back up the mountain because I didn't realize you had to climb back up the mountain after the jump. It took me hours. It took me hours. He came back with his friend to, f- to find me. Granted, I had made it up the hill at that point, but they came back. But see, it, the humanity, it doesn't matter that you have different views Mm-mm. on foreign policy or how country. That right. was the way he looked at this stuff. It's just being being human. Yeah. And that's what the human connection is what we've lost since everybody became either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And it's- yeah. Either be canceled or, yeah. But let's do this. Let's get into headlines. In the news, nearly half of Americans disapprove of the way that President Joe Biden has handled the Ukrainian crisis. A new poll revealed. Wow, nearly half. Biden's overall disapproval. And by the way, that's with all of the media aligning with one point of view. That's with one point of view. That's a big poll. Biden overall disapproval rate stands at 52%, according to the Washington Post ABC News poll, while 47% of Americans disapprove of the president's handling of the Ukraine issue in particular compared to the 42% that approve. Over 40% of the correspondents or respondents say they strongly disapprove of Biden's job performance. The worst rating are in the issue of inflation, with 68% of Americans saying they disapprove and only 28% saying they approve. Those are brutal, brutal polls, considering, again, that the U.S. media is organized around one very specific narrative, one very specific point of view has eliminated to the degree that it could eliminate other competing points of view and made it as if Ukraine is a 51st state where we have to dedicate billions and billions to keep into the West orbit, despite the damage that that is causing to our government and the various people in this country, especially the people at the bottom edge of the economic ladder. That poll is damning. And it seems that in spite of all the propaganda and the lies that have been dumped onto the public in order to get them into a very specific headspace and point of view, it doesn't seem to be taken completely. It gives me hope. Infamous never-Trump Republicans Congressman Adam Kinzinger has introduced a new authorization for use of military force resolution which would allow President Joe Biden to send troops to Ukraine if Russia were to use, quote, chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, unquote, against the country. The proposed AUMF, similar in scope to resolution by Congress, given successive presidents the authority to attack Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, and fight Washington's 20-year war on terror, is the first new resolution of its kind since 2013. He is basically saying the U.S., after provoking war, after not pushing its client vassal state, Ukraine, to accept the Minsk agreements, and after not accepting basic agreements of alignment or, let's say, neutrality, to now 
After dumping billions of dollars, billions of dollars in weapons, all sorts of training of mercenaries and everything else, advisors, that now, after all of that has failed, potentially, we should add U.S. troops for what? For what? A third world war? Is that basically what you're saying? Talk about being on the wrong side of history. You really need to check reality on this. Not to mention the American public is not with you. Tulsi Gabbard, oh, thank you. Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat, <laughs> despite what many of her colleagues will say, a former U.S. representative for Hawaii argued that former U.S. President Barack Obama, not President Joe Biden, is behind the federal effort to establish the Disinformation Governance Board, or as we call it, and pretty much everybody else has been calling it, the Ministry of Truth. Quote, Biden is just the front man, unquote, Tulsi Gabbard said on Twitter on Sunday. Quote, Obama, April 21st, social media censors don't go far enough, so the government needs to step in and do the job, unquote. She then compared the plan um, Disinformation Governance Board to George Orwell's Ministry of Truth, one of four ministries of the government, Oceana, in 1984. History doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does rhyme. Goebbels is somewhere applauding ferociously um, at this proposal. In international news, Russian Foreign Ministry Minister Sergei Lavrov said on Sunday that over $300 billion was stolen from Russia, the majority of which was payment for oil and gas supplies because energy giant Gazprom had to store money in Western bank accounts. Quote, they wanted to punish Russia, so they just stole it, Lavrov said in an Italian media set broadcaster explaining that, quote, money was stolen from us over 300 billion. Most of the amount was received for oil and gas supplies, unquote. Lavrov noted that, quote, now we are offer, offered to continue trading as before and the money will remain with them, unquote. Just open, theft. Understand what this means from the standpoint of other countries. What do other countries think when they see the U.S. steal $300 billion dollars? What does China think? There are reports now that China was basically talking to its banks to try to figure out a way around sanctions because they believe something may take place in the same way this was provoked with Ukraine to be provoked with Taiwan. Jamal, don't forget, here in the U.S., at least in my home state in California, we're okay with theft because you can break into CVS and as long as you steal like under $1,000 worth of stuff, you will not be prosecuted. So... That's the message we're sending to the rest of the world is that theft is okay. Theft is totally fine. So I guess in the case of of nat gas or or petrol, you know, couple billion, that's okay, folks. It's just three hundred billion dollars. Just you know, that's all. Theft is totally the norm here in the U.S. We do it every day. The government does it to us every day. More than a third of a trillion dollars. Normal. They just. That's amazing. Yeah, that's going to have consequences. Mark my words. That will have consequences in the way other countries see the U.S. and invest in the U.S. and whether or not they think this is a safe actor. Any of those countries could come at odds with the U.S. And considering that this is where they're going with it, oh, this is disturbing. Totally messing up our world credibility in terms of of a stable economy. Yes. Because they're going to go, okay, the U.S. traditionally is like the world escrow holder. Mm -hmm. Gone. That reputation, gone. As long as currency can remain this kind of liquid thing that other countries can use without us using it as a weapon or for The moment that you use that stuff as a weapon, other countries are going to try to mitigate the fact that that's a weapon. Yeah, even though the EU is playing along right now with the U.S. because the U.S. is the big the big dog yeah. on the street, they might be playing along, but behind closed doors, they know. They're like, oh, 
it's not necessarily safe to rest our money in U.S. coffers because they may not give it back. Yeah, think about that. It's amazing. Wow. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met on Sunday with U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who arrived in Kiev. Quote, I'm grateful for the signal of strong support to Ukraine. Oh, Zelensky said, I thought Nancy Pelosi was saying that, I'm sorry. Moreover, Zelensky was awarded Pelosi with the order of Princess Olga. His office said, my bad, it was a bad Pelosi <laughs> uh, representation, my bad, my bad. I'm sure she's like, I want to thank the Academy. Right, <laughs> right. The Ministry of Truth. It's like this dead-eyed look into the camera, like, is she really there? But don't forget, she also thanked Zelensky for his war. Thank you for the war and getting all of these people killed. Thanks, Zelensky. the weirdest thank you speech ever. You have all of those people that died as a result of this war, and I just want to thank you so much for it, Zelensky. It's so weird. Utterly bizarre. This Princess Olga means the world to me. (laughs) So bizarre. What a weird, I don't know. Uber bizarre. Iran's petroleum minister, Javad, I think this is Auji, is currently on a trip to Venezuela, which would include visits to oil facilities and signing an energy agreement between the two U.S. sanctioned countries. Bloomberg reported on Sunday, citing sources. Both parties are set to sign energy cooperation agreements on Monday, according to the report. I've read other reports that made the point that said Iran was basically back to 100% in regards to pushing their oil. Interesting. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told Greece ERT network that he is grateful the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other volunteers, whoever they may be. He also asserted his belief that they are, quote, almost no cause for radicalism in Ukraine. Okay, sure, they're not. The Ukrainian president, who spoke both in Ukrainian and English during the interview, said back in 2014, quote, volunteers from different parts of the state united to defend Ukraine, unquote, because the country did not have such a powerful army as it does today. What he is talking about are basically the separatist regions that separated the moment that the elected government of Ukraine collapsed. The new coup government, which is exactly what it was, opens up and calls those people terrorists and it's opened up a campaign where they are basically killing other Ukrainians. They did this for eight years. Nobody paid attention to it. And moreover, not just nobody paid attention to it, at the point where the war finally kicked off, it was immediately ignored that this was Ukrainians killing Ukrainians and immediately went to Russia is fighting Ukraine. There needs to be some reality in the way that we talk about this stuff. The moment that a government collapses, it is no longer a legitimate government. And those countries, not countries, but those independent regions declared their independence because they understood that the Russophobic government that was going to take power was not the government to which they elected. We don't talk about it like that here, but that is the reality of events. Let's keep going. In tech news, in an emergency meeting on Friday, employees of Twitter reportedly complained to CEO Park Agrawal that diversity officer Delana Brand, that the new owner, Elon Musk, is allegedly an open homophobe and transphobe, unquote. They allegedly expressed fears for the future of the company. The, quote, impromptu, unquote, get-together was reported on Saturday by Insider, which claimed to have obtained leaked audio proceedings. According to the news site, Agarwal fielded questions from staff concerned that they could lose their job amid rumors that Musk is planning on slashing executive pay. Look, if he slashes executive pay, that is not the same thing as you losing your job. If you decide to leave after he slashes your pay, that is on you. Right. You're still employed. You're still employed. You're just getting paid less. Right. Like, 
that's what happens when companies get bought out and taken over. Like sometimes people lose their jobs. Sometimes the company moves. Sometimes the changes in okay. regards to pay. That's capitalism. Sorry. <laughs> right. Bend the brakes, That's kids. the brakes. <laughs> That's the brakes. In Earth and Science News, scientists at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, C-SETI, um, or SETI, suggested in a recent study to stop searching for biosignatures in atmospheres of distant planets and focus on technological signs of advanced civilizations, as they may be faster found. University of Pennsylvania astronomer Jason Wright and colleagues believe that alien technology is more common and easier to detect than biological signatures, as the number of planets or even star systems on the technosignatures can be found in much larger than the number of planets with signs of biological life. Interesting. In business news, without Russian supplies, the European Union could not simultaneously fill up members' underground gas storage facilities to prepare for the next winter and continue to operate industry, Spiegel Business reports, citing the conclusion of a leading German research institute. According to the Julich Research Center, a state-sponsored interdisciplinary institution whose areas of expertise include energy and environment, cutting down on Russian gas deliveries by two-thirds, as recently promised by EU officials, would force industrial enterprises to shut down for months at a time as UGS sites are filled up, as they are simply no alternative sources of supply. There are all sorts of claims that they're going to do this and that. We'll see how that works out. In this day in history, in 1945, more than one million German soldiers officially surrendered to Western allies in Italy and Australia. In 1945, World War II, Battle of Berlin ends. The Soviet army takes Berlin and General Welding surrenders. Definitely look at Beaver's book on Berlin and Stalingrad. Those books are astonishingly good. Read Stalingrad first, then go to Berlin. It's amazing. In 1949, Arthur Miller wins Pulitzer Prize for death of a salesman. In 1982, Falklands War, Argentine cruiser General the Lograno sunk by British submarine conqueror, killing more than 350 men. That's grim. In 2008, Cyclone Nargis makes landfall in Myanmar, killing 130,000 people and leaving millions of people homeless. Wow. In 2011, Osama bin Laden, the suspected mastermind behind September 11 attacks, an FBI most modern man is killed by U.S. Special Forces in Abbottabad, Pakistan. If I'm not mistaken, Obama did the correspondent dinner the day before, joking about it, knowing full well that that strike what was, was taking happen, place. Yes. Know? If you guys, you guys are listening to, oh, those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Yeah, I remember that one. The people basically came in and told the U.S. that Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. And they made it look like 20 Dark 30 and all of this other stuff, like there was all this intel. And it wasn't that. It wasn't that. Somebody came in and told him about it. Um, and Obama was doing the dinner. And if I'm not mistaken, he was ribbing Trump that day, saying that Trump, you know, had to go to Pookie in order to do this and that, while at the same time he knew in his head this operation was going down. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Manila Chan. Back in a moment with Scotty Nail Hughes. Always a great guest. You're gonna love her. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around the Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. 
If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share the audio or video. Also, slam your fist into that rumble button. Definitely give us the rumble button and share us. Share this video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And so last night, let's start here with the White House Correspondent Dinner. And this is kind of a tradition that basically ended during the COVID era. Donald Trump wouldn't necessarily show up. It was also that. And there were concerns about COVID for this particular event, that this was going to be a super spreader event, especially with an old president like we have with Joe Biden. Nevertheless, it went off. There were comedic jokes and all of this other stuff. Let's have a conversation about it with Scotty. Scotty Nell Hughes is joining us. She's a political commentator, pundit, and journalist, and a regular on fault lines. Scotty, how are you doing this morning? I am doing fabulous. Once again, taking my life in my own hands while talking to you guys as I'm being letting my 15-year-old drive to school with me in the passenger seat. So, Oh, my word. Houston, <laughs> we've got trouble. That button right there. Yeah, be prepared with the button, but so far we're okay. We're Excellent. Knows Mama's on a radio interview. So what did you think about the correspondence dinner? Just as an overall review, how did you think Joe Biden did with the comedy? I mean, granted, this administration has basically failed, even in the one thing that he has basically associated his administration with, the war. And despite having all of the media on his side, even there, he has disapproval of the American public on how he handled that war, not to mention inflation and everything else. So it's somewhat treacherous him to go and make jokes about stuff that the American public is basically utterly consider him failing on. How did you view this dinner? Well, I have a lot of observations from that night. Let me just start off, first of all, by with the disclaimer that I wish I was there. I actually like the correspondence dinner as correspondent. By the way, have you ever been? I have. I have been. I was able to go once so under my time, with my time during CNN, I was able to get an invitation there. Ah. But here's what was, what is interesting about the correspondence dinner. What I don't like, and I don't like it about politicians. I don't like it at political dinners. I don't like it at correspondence dinners. Where they, all, they started off by just clapping each other on the back. Because if you look at the two industries with the worst approval ratings, with the worst job actual accomplishments, it's politics and media. And so they hold the biggest dinners of the years each other on the back because they know no one else would do that for them. It's like, we're so great at this. We're so great at this. Yeah, because no one else is saying that. Uh, so that's my first observation about this year. I think it's, I think it's a, a lovely time every year. Um, but what I, there was a couple things that made me, first off, is Trevor Noah. And I don't know if you have the clip that he did. You know, he's sitting there looking at Joe Biden and saying, things are looking up. Up in prices, up in food, up in gas. And Joe Biden's laughing. He actually has the audacity to laugh as people are losing their jobs, can't afford food, can't afford gas for their cars. The president of the United States, which is 100 percent this is on him, is laughing about it and making a joke. And I'm sorry. I get it. It, it might be humorous to them. But to those of us out in the real world that are having to deal with this economic situation that he has put us in and the trials, it's not funny. So I was a little offended, actually. I'm actually, I was glad Trevor Noah pointed it out, but I wish he would have looked at Biden and said, stop laughing. I didn't mean this for you to laugh at. This is not a joke. This is the truth. It's not funny that we have, we have a high gas prices and food shortages. That's not a funny joke. So that's my first observation. The second thing that I found to be very interesting was the fact that 
they talk about, you know, he ended, Trevor Noah ended in this great monologue about Ukraine and, and Russian journalists have the courage. We need to have the courage like the Russian journalists who are being censored and killed. And I'm like, what am I listening to? Because the only censorship I have is in this country from this government, from the pressures. Because guess what? Even when RT in America and Sputnik was allowed on, we're not allowed to be a part of you guys. Don't talk to me about limiting. Don't talk to me about free speech when you're the ones that are the biggest, biggest uh, offenders of free speech and freedom of the press, and you're in this room applauding each other. It, it, it's absolute. That those two points of hypocrisy really got me last night or two nights ago when we watched it. Yeah, I feel like Scotty. They should have waited on the timing of announcing the Ministry of Truth <laughs> right. until right. after the correspondence dinner because they're just like, oh, let's throw this out there on a Friday or whatever because no one's going to notice that we're going into a weekend, right? But they failed to think that over the weekend there was going to be the correspondence dinner and how this would look on Monday. Yeah, They're doing a really bad job of like taking into consideration timelines and what this looks like. So now, like the way I took it was, okay, y'all announce this Ministry of Truth and then have this great big old gala applauding the Ministry of Truth. That's what it looks like to me. Should have been the keynote speaker, um, I think. And, you know, it's interesting. I I applaud you for speaking about this Ministry of Truth because, as we found, the New York Times over the weekend did this huge in-depth article. I think they assigned nine investigative reporters. Tucker Carlson. Carlson. And they didn't mention the minister of truth or the czar of truth or whatever you want to call it. I call it the dictator of truth. Um, uh, they didn't even mention that in any of their newspaper, but they had nine investigative reporters assigned to Tucker Carlson. Uh, that's the kind of, that's what I think makes people on the outside look at the press and go, what are you doing? And where is your credibility? How can we have faith and trust in you when we do not see this balance? Well, it's, I looked at the white house correspondents are draped in yellow and blue that match Nancy Pelosi's uh, costume while she was meeting with Zelensky, I have to wonder, they really are playing us. We are, we are a part of a script, a Netflix series or something where they believe that the American people are being entertained and are buying this. And, and I don't think the American people are anymore. We'll find out in November for sure. I don't think they're buying it either because fact of the matter is the effects of this are basically hitting people in the wallet. And the fact that it's hitting them in the wallet, I think this stuff is going to be basically deposited at Joe Biden's footstep, regardless of what they believe about Ukraine, regardless of the propaganda that media will put out about Ukraine in order to try to get Americans to believe that this is a vital interest to you in your life. And you got to pay for your values, even if that means the amount you pay for food, gas, chicken, bacon, et cetera, et cetera, dramatically increases. I want to also go into certain clips. We have the clip of the Trevor Noah one. Before we get to that one, I want to go into bootlickers who are basically solidifying and backing up this idea of the Ministry of Truth. Hold hold that thought before we get into bootlickers. I just want to say you and Scotty are both so hopeful that you guys think the American people are not being duped. Oh, I think they're being duped. I think I, I, I think there are a handful of, of listeners, the, the small audiences that we have on Sputnik yeah. and that RT used. That's, but that's different. They have always been, you know, aware of the realities out in the world. Those people have not changed. Yeah. It's the, the overwhelming swaths of millions of other Americans that are duped into thinking anything Russia, bad. Yes, yes. Russia, bad. Ukraine, good. And 
that leads perfectly into the bootlicker yeah. you're about to introduce. Yeah, basically, Ministry of Truth. And you have all of these people in media trying to basically say, hey, hey, I know you guys are calling a Ministry of Truth, but this is something that's good. You got to believe this. this is something that's good. We're just trying to protect free speech. Good like the contraction of the economy. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So this is DHS Secretary Mayorkas creepily discussing the Ministry of Truth and how it's there to protect free speech. Let's play the clip. I believe that this working group that gathers together gathers together best practices, makes sure that our, our work is uh, coordinated, consistent with those best practices, that we're safeguarding the right of free speech, that we're safeguarding civil liberties, I think is an extraordinarily important endeavor. We're safeguarding free speech. We're safeguarding um, liberties. And, you know, like I pointed out the other day, the NBC News article that basically goes on and says, hey, they've been lying to you for months about one issue after the next about the war. One self-serving narrative have come out to be just basically not true. And many of this was just trying to get into Putin's head. So with the disinformation bureau or the disinformation governance board, would they have in any way challenged any of the lies that was coming out from the U.S. government? And of course, we know the answer is no. So what is this guy talking about protecting free speech, Scotty? He's not. Once again, this is all one big play, one big illusion. You know, I, I, interesting, when you, you played that clip, I thought back to also the video that I kept seeing over and over of this new minister of truth. She are, she's actually, she put, out some, or did, she put out this thing of Mary Poppins. And yes. The real thing, she's calling, and she says, you can just call me the Mary Poppins of disinformation. And I'm going, a spoonful of, hmm, makes the government BS down? Is that the song that I'm singing? Uh, because that, and she loves to sing all the time, and she sings the most inappropriate songs, and these videos are surfacing, and you have to wonder. It almost reminds me of when Obama first came into office, and he put in the green czar, and that was um, Van Jones. And, and we were like, what is this czar term? You know, it's real funny. We hate Russians, but we love czars. Uh, and everybody's like, you know, czar of this, czar of that. Now we are having this new disinformation. It's kind of the same kind of titles coming out. That Why is it that these kind of administrations always have to have these dictator-type titles, but then at the same time, their, part of their rhetoric is going against what they consider to be dictators? It's the double standard. Once again, disinformation coming from their own administration first. I just got to say, Nina Jankowitz, the new disinformations are, she got the crazy eyes. I mean, even in her official picture that she posted, her portrait, like I've seen multiple pictures zoomed in, zoom, 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 zoom. And it's, it's the crazy eyes. It's like she's staring at you even in the picture. Just, there's just weird stuff going on there. There's crazy eyes. And as a, as a boy mom, and Scotty, you know this, we know. Uh-oh. We know. Wait, what do you know? <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? When you look at a girl... And, and Scotty, I mean, she's got a teenager. He's driving. When boy moms look at a girl. The eyes right now. I have the crazy eyes right now, Manila. <laughs> That's a different kind of crazy because you're sitting shotgun yeah. while a teenager is driving. That's different. But when, when boy moms, experienced ones, are looking at girls coming to, you know, hang out with their sons. Yeah. They know. They know that the girl, oh, that girl. Mm. Mm. Nina Jankowitz is that girl that I would go, mm. Wait, I need to understand what that means. You, you guys are getting, <laughs> boy moms. What does that mean? What does that mean? What is the crazy eyes getting across to you when you're like, okay, my son just brought this woman home and her eyes are a little, you know, there's something going on in the yes. visual area. It's just, 
You can see the crazy. Oh, I see. You can see the crazy. But crazy is seductive, man. I, like, oh, my God. It is. Crazy is seductive. Complicated but, women but are then, seductive. Yeah, I can see that. But <laughs> but when you see the crazy eyes doing a Mary Poppins song about disinformation, <laughs> that's just straight up crazy. I don't know how that's sexy. That's great. Just flat out crazy. Put her in the loony bin. Put a straight jacket on that woman. <laughs> let her out five years later after she's been through deep therapy and had lots of meds. And by the way, crazy doesn't necessarily mean not harmful. Right here. This is her. We need a platform to do more, and we frankly need law enforcement and legislatures to do more as well. And in other countries that we're looking at this, you know, UK has an online safety bill that is being considered right now where they are trying to make illegal and this currently, quote, awful but lawful content that exists online where people are being harassed. And of course, all of those terms are subjective, right? And when you have the subjective terms, you can basically live in those terms and make those terms anything that you want, even to the point of breaking the actual definition of those terms. There's one more clip I want you to hear, Scotty. And this is bootlicker, calling him a bootlicker, Brian Stelter, who's supposed to be independent media. And yet he is loving this disinformation board stuff. He loves it. And he doesn't understand what people are calling it the Ministry of Truth. And so Stelter took time out of his day in order to basically beef up the bona fides and the credibility, shedding his own credibility to do so, the disinformation governance board. Let's play the clip with Stelter. Here in the U.S., there's been a, an uproar in recent days about the Department of Homeland Security setting up what they call a disinformation governance board. Um, this has been mostly a Fox World story. It, uh, it, it could come up earlier today on CNN State of the Union. But I don't think people know what it is and what it isn't. And there's just been a lot of, of right-wing uproar without knowing what it is. So do, are you in, uh, aware of this at all? What is this all about? Aware of it. And I think the first thing is, is that it's a board, exactly as we say. It, it is meant to bring together people to coordinate a lot of the efforts inside of DHS. That means law enforcement. That means emergency services like FEMA. They've all been doing counter disinformation efforts for a while to give us accurate information about uh, uh, human rights abuses, but also about disasters and where people can get assistance. So coordinating that activity, making it speak with one voice, and being a stronger advocate to tech companies and engaging the public and academia, that's really what they're after. But hold on. Um, that sounds like common sense. But when I Google this, all I see is like Joe Biden's Ministry of Truth and they're going to, you know, like it's this, there's this incredible backlash to something that sounds like basic government bureaucracy. It is basic government bureaucracy. And around the world, what we're asking for governments to do is to step up more and to play a bigger role in advocating for people. The mm. big litmus test is, is civil society included? Is the media included? And so far, everything we've heard about the board, which is new and just started, right. shows us that that is the intention, is to be fully transparent and to demand more from our government in terms of how they protect us from disinformation and enable us to have information that protects our country mm. and advances our ability to survive in a, in a major incident, for instance. Mm. Love and light. Rainbows. Uh, uh, Love um, and light. Manila? A couple points here. <laughs> First of all, I, I want to push back on my buddy Jamarl here. Uh-oh. What credibility does Brian Stelter have on what planet? Oh. I want to know because he got schooled by a college freshman yes, he did. very recently. So. And schooled by the guy he brought on to debunk the college freshman. Because you remember the guy came on and was like, yeah, you guys do push propaganda. He was like, are you having a false equivalence? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there, there's that. So I don't know where on earth <laughs> Brian Stelter <laughs> right. has any credibility. Completely fair. But I mean, I believe the voice we were hearing just now, the woman, that was Nina Jankowitz, right? No, 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 no. That, that was, was Nina. 
That was another person that he brought on basically to talk about it, like a correspondent or something. Oh, okay. I couldn't make out the voice because yeah. if it was singing, I might have known it yeah, was yeah. Nina Jankovic. It would have been obvious. Yeah. But the woman that was talking to Brian Stelter, Scotty, she's basically saying that that the government should do more to censor and stifle speech. And she's basically saying the rest of the world needs to get in on this and y'all need some more censorship, too. That's basically what she said, right? Uh, Manella, that's an, that's an absolutely an excellent point. But I was more stunned by two things. But the first, we're going um, that uh, basically admitting that we need more government bureaucracy. This is more government bureaucracy. It's like... I've never heard actually anybody in politics say we need more government bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously she's not elected office because that would go over real well with the voting public. Uh, could you imagine someone running for office saying, you know what, I'm here because I think we need more government. Like, what? Um, the fact that she said that. But then the most shocking of all of that is when she said law enforcement and the military. And I went, hold on. You are sitting here openly at saying that there is going to be a coordination with this department and the, and law enforcement. So if they don't like what I say, this is how you get the Chinese way of the knock on your door. I don't say Chinese, where you get the you know what we've heard of, of the bad ways in the past of people saying of knocking on the doors and the government saying we don't like what you say and you're going to pay the price for it. So I I'm just I'm very very shocked right now that this is not the woman they need out advocating and speaking speaking on behalf of the government. You know, Scotty, I want to move to this other story that was in The Hill, and I love this story. It's phenomenal to me, where they're basically arguing, or the opinion piece, our writer, is arguing that the Democratic Party should basically ditch the election for 2028, because basically— Ditch 2024. 2024, right. I'm sorry. Oh, skip that. Skip and just, that one. Just go look at 28. And just focus on 2028. Try to come up with a new identity for the okay. party. Okay. Try to come up with a new message that the public can kind of jump on to. And they're basically saying, look, Kamala Harris needs to be challenged vigorously uh, for it, even if that means she loses with the idea that the Democratic Party is going to be something else in 2028. They're basically saying, look, we have no, nobody on the bench. We have no idea who's going to make this work. I still think it's going to be Hillary Clinton. They're saying we don't know how it's going to make us work. Just come up with a new identity by 2028. You also have this thing that basically came out with Noam Chomsky saying Donald Trump is the only statesman that is willing to come to some kind of resolution to this war, whereas the current administration is basically finding ways to subvert the peace process. I find that, like both of those things are amazing to me. I want your take on that. I mean, is Donald Trump the statesman in this regard that Noam Chomsky basically said? Because keep in mind. I would imagine if you went back in time and told Chomsky that he was going to say that, that Chomsky, under no circumstances, would believe him and probably would even call you a liar. Um, but he nevertheless said it. We played the clip earlier. What is your take on that? Do you think that it's true that if Donald Trump takes office, that he would be able to have some kind of leeway in order to try to come to some resolution on this? Well, first of all, the fact that Noam Chomsky said that, I think a lot of people were shocked by that because he has definitely not been a fan of Trump in the past. But it also talks about just having the ability to stand up. And I don't necessarily think it's Trump. I think it's about anybody who is willing to stand up to what is happening right now in building. You know, there, there is a problem with the Democrats right now. Lately, I've heard Pete Buttigieg's name continuously come up, Gavin Newsom's name come up. Uh, but that's basically it. And those definitely could be highly... Uh, 
highly, I can already do the opposition research on both of those, and it doesn't take much. But those two names seem to be the rising stars, maybe Beto O'Rourke. So they're trying to somehow preserve uh, that they've got this, give this illusion that there's a future of, of the Democratic Party, considering what the environment that we're in. But we all know the best, best motivator for people to vote Democrat is corrupt Republicans or a failed Republican agenda. And that's what we saw, how we've been able to get to the place that we are today. So it's one of those where it goes, whether it be Trump, you know, we were talking about, not to bring in the old subject, but we were talking about uh, this disinformation. The only real Republican who's really stood up to her has been Governor DeSantis. He immediately went on the record and said, you cannot have a ministry of truth in this country, saying that um, uh, Biden won't get away with having a disinformation board that can silence critics and says that will not be able to have any sort of leeway at all in his state of Florida. That's the kind of strength right there that the Republicans need to be showing us what Trump got elected on. And right now, Trump can say it, but his course, his past, unfortunately, doesn't always show strength. And I think that's what got him not reelected in 2020. DeSantis is coming in here already swinging. It'll be interesting to see if the Republicans continue, who they continue to push behind. The Democrats do not have a deep bench. Beto O'Rourke, could not win in his own home state, much less you think he's going to win across the country. No way. Beto O'Rourke cannot win. Um, his name is Robert, folks. <laughs> Robert O'Rourke cannot win. And we should note that his his wife, um, her father, is a pretty well-known developer in Texas. And so he throws, a, obviously, Daddy, father-in-law, throws a lot of money um, his way to help him out with his political career. And his father-in-law right now is is basically trying to tear down a historic old Pueblo city in southern Texas where, you know, we're talking like 80-year-old abuelitas are hanging out on the porch trying to tear down these old historic sites um, of Mexican-American families of before, you know, this is before the Alamo, right? Like these old historic towns. So just so we know, this is the guy that wants to go by the name Beto, but takes money from his father-in-law who wants to tear down Latin heritage, Mexican heritage in Texas. So I think Beto's probably donezo. Bedtime for Bonzo, that guy. Uh, I think, I don't know who they have. They really, I mean, somebody that's really coming on the scene, Scotty, that I, I, of the limited pool the Democrats have, and I, I don't I don't even know if he's registered as a Democrat, but he's running against Gavin Newsom in California as Michael Schellenberger. And he's he's an author. He used to be an activist. Admittedly, he said in his 20s he used to work directly for George Soros. And yeah. And he's kind of not he hasn't gone the other way. He's just stayed where he was. And it's just that the Democrats went further and further and further left. And he just kind of stood where he was. I think if the Democrats wanted to have somebody to put up there on a national stage that could potentially win moderates, it's this Schellenberger guy. But no one's ever heard of him, except me, I guess, because I read stuff, nerd. Are you from California? I'm from California, so I keep up with his politics. But all we know is Gavin Newsom or Eric Garcetti. Um, and there's really nobody else. And you think, you think Hillary Clinton. I think Clinton. Because I can't think of anybody else. Scotty, what That's do you think I mean. about Clinton? There's no bench. There's no bench. And for her, it's like, it's her turn. I can totally hear that again. It's her turn. It's her turn. She was cheated by Trump. 
What do you say about a rerun between Trump and Clinton? I think it's too early in the morning for me to have. <laughs> um, this is a family show, so I can't say what I really think about that. I, no, I, I think that that would be. I don't think America has the stomach for those two to run against each other because uh, we barely made it through, you know, in 2016. Uh, it's gonna, we're going to have both sides will be very desperate. That's truly what we get to. And I think that we've got too many other uh, leaders. If there's anything that Biden is showing as America is that we're tired of the same thing. We're tired of the good old boy system, the same families, the same agendas. It is time for truly some fresh blood um, to be brought into government. As what they were hoping to get with Trump didn't really work. Uh, I think people are just saying they need to have a break in this just this litany of just re- re- wash, rinse, and repeat um, of failed policies, which is what we're seeing. We're going to the third term of the Biden administration with it. Scotty, I want to play a clip. And this was the Trevor Noor clip that you mentioned earlier, giving a speech at the end. And people should hear this because as you listen to it, keep in mind the people who they gotten rid of off Twitter. Keep in mind of the New York Post story getting blocked. Keep in mind of them getting rid of RT, even um, from the standpoint of the way they went for RT and Sputnik in the UK and in, um, in, in Europe. And yeah, even tried to come after us in the United States. Keep in mind all of the censorship that you have basically encountered on social media. Listen to Trevor Noah talk about how great it is that this is such a free, um, um, free public in regards to media. Let's play the clip. You know, so can I just say... I think everyone will agree that it's actually nice to once again have a president who's not afraid to come to the White House Correspondents' Dinner and hear jokes about himself. I'll, I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I'll be honest. If you didn't come, I totally would have understood. Yeah, yeah, because these people have been so hard on you, which I don't get, I really don't. You know, I think ever since you've come into office, things are really looking up. You know, gas is up, rent is up, food is up, everything. Okay, this was the first one. This wasn't the final speech for it, but nevertheless. That's the way he basically started. The way he ended, though, was kind of the way you mentioned, where he goes into this long monologue about how the free press is an amazing thing, how all of you guys who are sitting here have the ability to tell the truth, regardless of who it hurts, who it offends, where it cuts, that you guys are just have this amazing ability to do this. And imagine being in a country that doesn't have the ability to do what you guys can do. That was basically the speech. It was this congratulatory triumphalism of press and media working in tandem with one another. And I'm sitting here looking at this like, dude, they got rid of all of these networks. Twitter and Facebook will put a Palestinian site, will put a Telesur, will put a Press TV in jail in a heartbeat. Not to mention anybody that this is not even people being racist, sexist, or anything else. It just runs in the face of a narrative that the mainstream media basically wants to put out and does not want anything to compete against. That's basically what he is ignoring in that. And and he's also ignoring that his parent company, HBO, is owned by a larger group. I think it's Paramount. And that so basically the 200 quote unquote journalists that were there, the air quotes. Um, we should note the 200 some odd people that were there, they essentially work for the same like 10 employers. Because if you look at all the parent companies, they're actually all colleagues. So this is really just like this, this group think, group agenda, group congratulatory, um, circles, something with a J that I'm not going to say, because I don't know if we can say that as a full term, but it's, (laughs) that's what they were all doing. That's, I mean. They all work for the same companies, if you break it all down. So 
of course they're they're going to say the same thing. They're never going to say anything bad about the other. And anyone who is an other like us or the three of us talking right now, we are the other, um, would never be allowed to go to those things because God forbid they have to have a conversation with us. And by the way, they're completely isolated from the consequences of the things that they're joking about. I mean, let's be clear. It's like when funny to them. Yeah, it's funny to them. When Obama's talking about drones and he's joking about drones, it's like, yeah. dude, are you insane? How many people have you murdered with those flying killer robots? And what Biden is talking about, this is like, okay, how many people died from COVID, Biden? Hundreds of thousands. Is that really funny? Or how many people are getting hit with inflation and have to deal with that cost? Already, meaning the level of poverty that people are dealing with, and now you have an extra tax on that because Biden wants to play this kind of grandiose world as a chessboard type game. That stuff is not funny. By the same token, they are completely isolated from the things that they are basically joking about. Scotty, that final speech, did it rub you wrong? And I know the answer to that is going to be yes, but what are they missing? I mean, is this just a situation that from their standpoint, they're fish in water? They don't see it because they will never necessarily be held to account because they're basically always going to go with the prevailing narrative of state. Well, here's what's interesting about this, because the more that I thought as I was listening to your Manila talk, I thought about, you know what, maybe this is kind of the government's free pass. Yes, the government can say we have freedom of the press because it's not the government that is keeping those stations out of the Correspondents Association, out of the White House. It's the press itself. Either... It's hard. There's not a separate press from the government because the press is doing the dirty work of the government. But let's just say that it just happened to be a good day and then Sputnik got, I don't know, you know, someone really famous that the press is just in love with to, to back them and say, make us correspondence. And there was a chance. I have no doubt that the government would come in and say they cannot be a correspondent and be in our White House and they can't be in our press room. Well, we should note, Scotty. Right now. Be, huh? We should note. Um, I mean, it was it was before you got to RT, but when the late, great Ed Schultz was there and all this stuff started happening in 2015, little by little, um, I mean, he Ed used to have a, a press pass into the White House for, yeah, yeah. So he used to go to these, you know, with Sarah Suck, or before, uh, who was it before Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Um, I forget the the different, uh, the different uh, press secretaries, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Ed, Ed used to go to these things and suddenly, little by little, they he used to show up to the gate because, you know, the studio was 100 yards probably from the White House gates. And somehow, this is Ed Schultz, one of the biggest broadcasters in the country. And they'd be like, oh, Mr. Schultz, somehow your name's not on the list. Today. Oh, we can't let you in today. Oh, that's weird. We didn't have you on the list today. And But he's like, but my past, nope. He would start getting left out little by little by little. And this is during the Obama years. A Democrat. And and Ed was a big, you know, uh, union guy. He was a big, you know, a believer in, in the people and the press. And little by little, he would start getting cut out from these circles. And the D.C. press started attacking Ed. I mean, I watched all this stuff happen. And... It was unbelievable. The legendary broadcaster that he was, both in the sports world and in the news world, they were cutting him out because it started then under Obama when they started cutting into RT America. Then these State Department, you know, press releases would come out about RT America and these hit pieces would come out on like the Daily Beast about poor Ed Schultz, who, I mean, this is, it was just bogus. It was 
flagrant bogus lies, and they would slowly start cutting Ed out of these accepted D.C. circles of journalists. Brings us to the point, is this press actually separate from the government, or do they do its bidding and its dirty work, and are they the mouthpiece of the U.S. government? And that is a very uh, question that needs to be defined. Our goal would hope to be a separate press that held the government accountable, that they weren't the lapdogs for the government. And yet I think we are existing in present day. And that's why, you know, for Trevor Noah to say, you know, at least we have a president who's not afraid to, uh, to come here. Well, let me point out, there's a big difference between coming into a very room filled of people who actually like you, who helped you get elected, and a room full of people that uh, would do anything to see you be completely destroyed, including push a lie for years that cost taxpayer dollars and cost people's lives for. So, it, it, you know, Trump could have gone into to a room of, you know, as much as any conservative organization and been beloved just like the president. But there should be highly alarming that any president can walk into a room of press that's supposed to be separate from them. And one's going to be hated and one is going to be absolutely embraced and loved. And there's some, that, that just shows right there that this idea of a bipartisan uh, press, a free and independent press, just does not exist. Daddy, you showed me a clip, and I had seen the clip, but I wanted to see if you wanted to give a take because you mentioned it in the text when we were talking back and forth. And it has to do with basically Zelensky before the election. And it's like as you look at that clip, you can see why elements of the east and the west of the country would vote for him. Because unlike this figure, this actor, that is basically on the stage now and debasing himself and getting his people basically killed um, for pursuit of U.S. I don't know what you want to call it. I guess U.S. support or U.S. interests. Um, this particular um, Zelensky, before getting into office, was basically talking about conciliatory measures, talking about this kind of reunification of Ukraine, the East and the West, and they shouldn't go and um, attack and kill the Russian speakers and that we should allow the Russian language. All of this stuff was basically coming out as he was basically running for office. And then, of course, of course, when he gets in office, we get this Zelensky, powered basically by right-wing neo-Nazis in one respect, and going after, continuing this kind of pursuit of killing the Eastern, or let's say the Russian-speaking um, Ukrainians. What did you take on this? I mean, that's such a dramatic departure, um, almost like a, a bait and switch in regards to the public voting in a guy who says one thing and then gets in office and does something else. We have experience with that in this country ourselves. But that is a rather drastic switch in regards to uh, the tenor of his administration. What is your take on that? I mean, I know you have some feelings about that. I have some major feelings, but it's what we've been saying all along. The Zelensky that we see today, the Zelensky that in these in these videos, these very angry videos that's surrounded with two neo-Nazis on one side um, that he's putting out. All these various videos that we're seeing of Zelensky is not the same Zelensky that one was overwhelmingly popularly elected in Ukraine back in 2019, um, and two, uh, was not the, the same man that was very popular in Russia, his largest, and that's what I, I tell that to you, I'm like, Zelensky's number one place where his, his uh, comedy was in demand was in Russia. And as he points out in his video, he says, guess what? He says, I speak Russian. I'm Jewish. I love Russia. Like, you hear this, and that was the man that was elected in Ukraine. So then you get to who we are today, and you go, okay, what makes a man have this much of a change? It's either A, fear for his life or his family's life, or B, it's not even power hungry. It's, it's, it's really just fear. 
something. You don't just do that because you are, you don't make that much of a dramatic change from where he was to now, unless there was something that was going on uh, behind the scenes that we don't know. You know, over the weekend, we saw, I saw the New York Times, the new narrative is Russia, this is war with the West, something we've been saying all along. And I'm like, thank you for finally admitting the truth that this is actually a proxy war with the West. The Ukrainians, unfortunately, are just being used as fodder. Biden needed the distraction. Uh, Boris Johnson needed the distraction. They, Biden had an unfinished policy, unfinished agenda from his 2014 coup, which, by the way, we are in the anniversary of uh, the story there in Ukraine where they actually lit a building of pro-Russian sympathizers on fire and burned them alive. We don't want to talk about that and who was behind that, that this is not just something that happened two months ago. But when people refuse, that's how I know when there's a set agenda in place, because they refuse to acknowledge the how we got to this role the last, it's not just been the last eight weeks, and the change we've seen over Zelensky, the dramatic change that you wonder, what in the world? It cannot be just a promise of money, a promise of power, even though we're hearing of mansions in South uh, that Zelensky owns and all of the money that uh, all of his foreign ministers are, are finding, you know, that they're getting pulled aside the wives and they have, you know, a, a, a suitcase full of cash. That's not even it. There's something that you are willing to take your own people and put their lives at risk, the Ukrainian people, for. There's something even more scary to, that, that's going on right there. And this is the same man that ran on the whole concept. Zelensky ran on the concept of exposing the corruption within his country, and it's changed this much. Uh, hopefully one day we'll know the truth, and hopefully not too many innocent lives are sacrificed for that. Scotty, thank you for this. I always appreciate your um, visit. Look, can't always be in studio. I know. Always love it. Love some way. Scotty. Love some Scotty. Scotty Nail Hughes, she's a political um Com- com- yeah, I know, right? Political commenter, pundit, journalist, and of course, analyst. Um, Scotty, thank you for this. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, Vanilla, what did you think about that? The very end. We have about a minute left. Oh. Um, about his about face? Yeah. I mean, it's oh, so drastic. Real, real, real quick, real easy. Um, so I'm not that I was a philosophy major or anything, but I, I enjoyed it. There are three main motivators in man. It's fear. Greed and hunger. There are only three things that drive humankind. So you can check off those boxes for yourself what you think happened with Volodymyr Zelensky, but I have a feeling that, yes, Scott, what Scotty said was right. He ran on one thing, and then I think, I think... Environmental pressures. Azov had some conversations with him. Yeah. And then he came out and was like, Skrrr, um, I'm going to have to go in a different direction. Yeah. And here we are. And there we are. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Minnelli Chan. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Right on. Great show this morning, especially for Monday. Monday usually takes a little bit to kind of, you know, warm up, to, to feel like a normality. I mean, look. 
frankly, I get withdrawals sometimes when we're not um, when we're not on, like during the weekend, because you get so used to this You're kind like, of. I need to say something. It's like right, and so every so often I would go down to my studio and do the show, and I've been doing that more often. I didn't do it this week just because a lot of stuff was going on for the last couple of weeks, but yeah, I get withdrawals at times. It's like, it, you know what it is? It's because I, I have I get so intensely enthralled in things. And when doing so, everything else becomes background. And so it's like when you take all of this time to develop a channel, develop a, you know, a show, you start the radio show, you're doing news, politics, all of this stuff, history, like intensely, and you're doing it consciously for a long time. You have a wife, and so your relationship is basically with the wife and then with the outside world. And so it's like your world kind of just isolates itself, even though it feels like you have a lot of people because you have audience members and everything else, especially if you're engaging them. In reality, a person, you don't have that. You're individual autonomous. It's it's very weird dynamic between the two things. And so it's like when you're not on the show, Or is it that you just, it. you like the routine? I like the routine. I like the debate. I like the conversation. I like this kind of ability to interact and everything else. It allows me to basically be just me. Um, in real life, that's difficult sometimes because the moment that you get into conversation like this in person, the person's eyes either glaze over or they're like, okay, this is kind of intense. You're um, a bit I, much, dude. Yeah, you're a bit much, man. This is a little much. I, uh, <laughs> I know I ended up in this conversation, but I don't know how I got here. Right. <laughs> it, it becomes that. And so it's like for the show or for that matter for your channel, that's a natural extension of who the person is being kind of, you know, exuded through this kind of medium and everything else in person that gets more intense to deal with. Well, I think with this, for me, getting getting in the groove of this routine yeah. was, sli- I mean, very different from... 5 a.m., man. I know. It is an, <laughs> 5 a.m. It's an early no start. Joke. It's an early start. So that was the first thing. But then the, my first couple of days here, I was like, three hours? Wait, when do you pee? <laughs> right. So I like, was like panicked the first two days. It's like, you can leave. Trust me. We, we Usually what happens is when one is doing the headlines, the other one does. Right. And with the third, it was kind of like, okay, do you want something to drink? Do you need anything going? It's like, okay, I need to go use the bathroom, et cetera. And well, so, didn't, I didn't want to ask. You know, when you're yeah. new, you're like, well, you don't want to cut out in the middle of the show. Because on TV, I certainly could not do no, that. On radio, you could do that there when your like, other co-host is working on it. Right. So I, I just, in my head, was like, okay, this is, it's like TV. You I can't. hold it for three I, hours. I just got to wait. <laughs> just got to wait. It's like, why is Vanilla so scrunched up like that all of a sudden on hour two? <laughs> right. right. But then I was like, okay. Then you kind of warm up. And, and again, we're learning new routines. Yeah. It's like getting a new roommate, right? Yeah, you kinda, it is. Like I always you, call it work wife. It feels like work a work wife yes. more than anything else. Yes. Because it's like, under normal circumstances, you don't engage with people like this. Yes. You don't have conversations with somebody this long. Mm-mm. Daily. Daily. Every day. Over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. And then and then also engaging everyone else out there. Yes. Because so, they can call in and everything else. Yeah. yeah. People call. People people comment. People, yeah. people do live chats. Now it's like, okay, I've got to listen to Jamar. Let me check in on the chats. Let me... Oh, what are they commenting? Because... People bring up some really good points. Oh, yeah. The the listeners and the viewers. And again, it, a lot of crossover between the Sputnik people and the RT viewers. Yeah. Um, very well-versed, well-read, oh, yeah. very alert yeah. people. This is hard in a marriage. Yes. Very hard. So, juggling all these all yeah. these elements, I'm like, okay, I didn't have to do that in live television. Oh, you didn't? No. Okay. So you're just very specific to a particular thing. No, we're like, we're talking about this subject. I'm the only one on camera. Yeah. So I don't really have to, like... Now there are a lot of moving parts. Until I have a guest on, so yeah. that was that was different. Then you have to really focus on what they're saying because sometimes they're going to say something and you're like, "What? Whoa, 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 whoa!" 
hold up. That yeah. doesn't sound right. And you got to push back in a polite way. Right. Because you don't you don't want to offend them. You don't want to alienate your guests. Right. But, but you do need to point out when they're wrong. Right. So you have to you have to really work on the finesse yeah. of, of how to say, yo, that was dumb. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, I... So it's very different than, but there was certainly no audience engagement, yeah. which is like the biggest. The thing. audience in the background, that's stupid. Right, and you're like, you're an it idiot. Was? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. correction, I was wrong. <laughs> like, oh, like I couldn't remember the Obama press secretary. Yeah. One of oh, the somebody knows it. One of the rumblers, Jay Carney. They know oh, that stuff. Jay Carney, I they forgot know that stuff, about man. Forgot about that guy. He was such a forgettable face. <laughs> right, right. He was such a Mr. Nothing. He was just, just so, remember like, just typical DC pencil neck dude. You would see, like, I wouldn't be able to pick him out in the lineup. Puff of air. Just Jay Carney. Yeah. Forgot about that guy. They know that stuff. But I think he works for, like, some, because it's a revolving door, as you know. Yeah. I think he now works for some big media outlet. At, oh, oh, he's. I think he's at Netflix. Wouldn't that be? I think it's Netflix. It's something really big. Yeah. But he's like their government liaison. Not shocked. Not what? shocked. Not shocked. You were <laughs> the press secretary and now, uh, don't quote me that it's Netflix, but it's something very something. big. Yeah. But he's their government liaison. Not shocked. So they they all go on to make these, the connection between Washington and, and Hollywood. Revolving so. door. It's a revolving door, Hollywood, the defense industry. But, um, you know, because D.C. is is Hollywood for ugly people. And Hollywood is Hollywood is the PR department for Washington. Is it? It, it just is. I mean, look. Okay, in the 80s, we had Rambo right. because we hated Russians then. Yes. So now it's coming back. And for a while, we hated brown people that looked Arab or Middle Eastern of sorts. Yeah. So where do you think? I mean, we get movies like that. I think that stuff is a reflection of the culture itself. Yeah, of I course. mean, think of like, for example, Injustice. Superman goes bananas and basically takes over the world. Now, from the standpoint of Superman, he was the representation of the United States from the standpoint of the comic books. Freedom, justice, equality, holding the American flag. Yeah. yeah. And so what happens when it looks like the U.S. has gone insane and decides to be the indispensable nation and world dominance and all of this other stuff? And how does the comic books, or for the matter, how does the culture appropriate and accommodate that stuff in a way where it presents it to the public? Meaning it's almost like society presenting itself to itself. Of course, yeah. Well, Superman goes insane. Superman loses Lois Lane, goes nuts, decides to take over the world, etc. And even though, in his head, I am doing this for the complete right reasons and everything else, it is a commentary on the way that we have operated in foreign policy sense. I think that stuff it is a reflection of us in a weird way. Whether they do it intentional or not, it is definitely a reflection. We can go even further back, pre-birth of Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Before there was even audio in film, in silent films, we go back to the Charlie Chaplin days, there was anti-Nazi Rhetoric in Rhetoric the films, yeah. Fi- yes, and I mean, not because I'm pro-Nazi, but it's still propaganda, right? Like, yeah, most by, things the, are propaganda. by the definition of propaganda, that's what it was. So you would see in silent films, even back then, it was like, oh, you're defeating the Nazis or you're defeating whatever yeah. at that time, the communist scourge, you know. Um, and it was always like that with, yeah. with Hollywood. So you you just see the, the convergence of the two. and Reflect and, ourselves to ourselves. But now nobody even tries to hide it. Yeah. It's like, can you have some class? Can you at least try to hide it? Jeez. <laughs> Charlie Wilson's War. That's another one. Where, you know, low, um, 
giving weapons to Afghanistan, to the Taliban, yeah. and I mean, the Mujahideen in order to kind of hit the Russians. And of course, this is a brilliant thing, triumphantly put in this particular story of Charlie Wilson. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and now they don't hide it. They they literally wear it on their sleeve as a badge of honor. They're like, yeah, I totally used to work for the Obama administration. And now I'm peddling propaganda at Netflix. That woke stuff is aggravating also, especially when it's infecting movies and, oh, man, they are destroying um, properties. But let's get to headlines. Yeah, let's do that. Let's head over to domestic news here. All right, nearly half of all Americans apparently disapprove of the way President Joe Biden has been handling Ukraine, according to a new poll by The Washington Post and ABC News. Um, The disapproval rate stands at 52%, while 47% disapprove of the president's handling of Ukraine in particular as to, you know, why his polling is so low. Um, And only about 42% actually approve of how he's handling it. Over 40% of respondents said they strongly disapprove of Biden's overall job performance. The worst ratings are on the issue of inflation, I think for obvious reasons, with 68% of Americans saying they disapprove and 28% somehow still saying they approve. It must be all the people that work at Raytheon or all the other, you know, weapons manufacturers. And infamous never-Trumper Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger has introduced a new authorization for use of military force, better known as an AUMF, a resolution which would allow President Biden to send troops to Ukraine, quote, if Russia were to use chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons against the Ukrainians. The proposed AUMF, similar in scope to resolutions by Congress giving successive presidents the authority to attack places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya and fight Washington's 20-year war on terror is the first new resolution of its kind since 2013. That was during the Obama administration. And former Democrat Congresswoman from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard argues that former U.S. President Barack Obama, not Joe Biden, is actually behind this new federal effort to establish a disinformation governance board, the Ministry of Truth, as we're all calling it. She says, quote, Biden is just a front man. She tweeted that out. She said that Obama, back in April of 21, she said, social media censors don't go far enough, so the government needs to step in to do the job. That was a quote from President Obama giving a speech uh, some time ago. She then compared the planned DGB to George Orwell's Ministry of Truth, one of four ministries of the government of Oceania in the famous book 1984. And then international news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said on Sunday that over $300 billion was stolen from Russia. The majority of that were payments for oil and gas supplies because energy giant Gazprom had to store their money in Western bank accounts. And he says, quote, they wanted to punish Russia, so they stole it. That's Lavrov telling Italian media set broadcaster explaining that, quote, money was stolen from us over $300 billion. Most of the amount was received for oil and gas supplies. And he noted, quote, now we are offered to continue trading as before and the money will remain with them. So probably not a great business decision. I don't think they're gonna go for it. 
Um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met on Sunday with U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who arrived in Kiev, and said, I am grateful for the signal of strong support to Ukraine. Moreover, Zelensky handed Nancy Pelosi the award of the Order of Princess Olga. Yes, he bequeathed her. <laughs> right, right. With the Princess Olga Award. Um, and, and she replied by thanking him for his war. I'm serious, I'm not joking about that. She thanked him for his war. You can hear this when they sat down at a round table. She said, I thank you for this war. Thank you. Weirdest acceptance speech ever. Thank you for this war, Zelensky. You're getting your people killed. Being the knife of U.S. interests to the throat of Russia. I appreciate this, Zelensky, so much. How bizarre is that? How many people have died over this nonsense? Yeah, but she got her award. For this? She got her award. That's got to thank him, you're right? You're missing the point, Jamal. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi got her award. Okay, so. Um, also, Volodymyr Zelensky told Greece's ERT network that he is grateful to the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other, quote, volunteers, whoever they may be. He asserted his belief that there are, quote, almost no calls for radicalism in Ukraine. There's some, just like hardly. He should just went all the way. There are no. He should just say I there know, are no you're, calls. But you're leaving the room. It's like, have you not learned to double down right. from the U.S. media yet? Just keep doubling down, bro. A subjective, intangible amount. Like, no, just call it. Just yeah. say none. There are no, no Nazis, no calls for radicalism. We are all like peace and ponies and sunshine and rainbows. That's right. Just say it. Just Love say it. Just, just own it. Go for it. Uh, the Ukrainian president who spoke both in Ukraine and in English during that interview said back in 2014, during the Maidan revolution, quote, volunteers from different parts of the state united to defend Ukraine because back then the country didn't have such a powerful army as they do today. Because ever since then, we should note the U.S. military has been there on the ground and NATO troops have been there on the ground to train the Ukrainian military and grow their military and gave them lots of shiny toys. And... Iran's petroleum minister, Javad Alji, is currently on a trip to Venezuela, which will include visits to oil facilities and signing of a new energy agreement between the two countries who are both sanctioned by the U.S. That's according to Bloomberg. Both parties are set to sign energy cooperation agreements today. And I ah, my computer was frozen. No, which one were you? There we go. We're at tech now. Over in Silicon Valley, there was an emergency meeting by the folks at Twitter. They demanded CEO Parag Agrawal and the diversity officer, Delana Brand, have a talk about Elon Musk because, quote, they believe he's an open homophobe and transphobe. They also (laughs) expressed fears for their future with the company. And this was, you know, an impromptu gathering, they say. Um, on a weekend, mind you, on a Saturday. Uh, And apparently there was leaked audio of this meeting that Insider has. And according to the news site, Agrawal fielded questions from staff, concerned that they could lose their jobs amid rumors that Musk is planning on slashing executive pay. Oh, my. Cursed them. What? And again, that's not firing them. Right. So you're still going to have a job, but... 
maybe he's going to take away your, you know, like the the in-house Starbucks that they supply. (laughs) Right. And I don't know, like maybe they're going to, you're going to get a little bit of a demotion from your multi six-figure salary or sitting there looking at Twitter complaints and deciding who to put in Twitter jail. So you're making, they're all making six figures. Unless, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't really know about the secretaries and, you know, like the office workers, but if you're... I get a feeling the executives are the ones yes. that are complaining. The executives are making millions. They're doing okay. Tarek Agrawal okay. has a, an out in his contract, which this counts as with, with uh, Elon buying Twitter. He's got a golden parachute of $35 million. For a company that hasn't made any money. Right. Golden parachute. So, you know, these C-suites like him. Golden parachute. They're complaining. So, cry me a river. Uh, Speaking of rivers, earth science. Scientists at at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, suggests a recent study to stop searching for biosignatures in the atmosphere of distant planets and focus instead on technological signs of advanced civilizations because that might be found faster. University of Pennsylvania astronomer Jason Wright and colleagues believe that alien technology is more common and easier to detect than biological signatures as the number of planets or even star systems on which techno-signatures can be found is much larger than the number of planets with signs of biological life. And let's hop over to this day in history. Today, in 1945, more than a million German soldiers officially surrender to the Western Allies in Italy and Austria. Also in 1945, World War II Battle of Berlin ends as the Soviet Red Army takes Berlin and General Wheatling surrenders. In 1949, Arthur Miller wins the Pulitzer Prize for Death of a Salesman. In 1982, Falklands War Argentine cruiser General Belgrano sunk by British submarine Conqueror, killing more than 350 men aboard. 2008, Cyclone Nargis makes landfall in Myanmar, killing more than 130,000 people and leaving millions more homeless. Then in 2011, today, Osama bin Laden, the suspected mastermind behind 9-11, the FBI's most wanted man, was killed by U.S. Special Forces in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And those are your headlines for this Monday, May 1st, 2022. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on. Let's go into our guests. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around the Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share the audio or video. Also, slam your fist into that rumble button. Definitely give us the rumble button and share us, share this video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be 
shy. And let's have a conversation about Twitter. There are certain things that have been happening that I got to be honest, I don't entirely understand why, especially since Elon Musk hasn't necessarily taken hold of Twitter yet. I was talking to Lee, um, Lee the other day, Shranahan, when I was on his show on Backstory, and he kind of made this analogy that I actually love, that people being beamed up and beamed away, almost like they've been alien abducted, all of a sudden reappearing back on Twitter after being in some kind of space where they were just in this netherworld. And the catch becomes, well, why? Elon Musk hasn't taken control of Twitter yet. And to be honest, we don't even know as a flat fact that this deal will go through. And yet there seems to be changes that are taking place in Twitter. My question is why? To have a conversation about this, we're joined with Chris Garafa. He's editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Not to mention, you can find him on Twitter at CMG. Chris, you were a great guest last time, amazing at your explanations of this stuff. And so I definitely wanted to bring you back. How are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. So what is going on at Twitter? The last time you were here, we were talking about kind of the larger implications of this, but I wanted to get into the practical details because a lot of people have been asking this question of where or why are all these people basically coming back? For example, Mike Lindell, Pillow Man. Pillow Man. My pillow. Yeah, my pillow guy gets re-added back to Twitter. And three hours after he's re-added, he's kicked off of Twitter again. But most of the people's experience is not like Mike, where they come back and immediately get, you know, do something, get kicked off. Why are these people all of a sudden being beamed back into the Twitter sphere, even though Elon Musk hasn't been there to make the adjustments and the changes necessary for those people to come back? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, look, if that if that move by if that was really Mike Lindell yesterday, and I think all signs are pointing to yes, that was him. Um, if you blinked, you would have missed this. He came back on Twitter, said it was me. Three hours later, he's gone again. But I mean, I don't know what he expected. He actually was permanently banned from Twitter. Uh, they said you spread election misinformation. Uh, and whether you agree with the, Twitter's ability to do this or not, it was their stated policy. I'm not sure what he was expecting other than maybe to rile some people up. But, you know, three hours later, he's gone. And because the, the account was getting, you know, a certain amount of attention. So it, of course, came to the attention of the Twitter uh, policy enforcers. But for everyone else, We've seen two diverging trends here. On the one hand, when Elon Musk announced he was going to buy Twitter and the board had, uh, you know, initially accepted his offer, we see that conservative accounts had a huge increase in followers, whereas liberal accounts, in fact, had a decrease in followers. Now, not exactly the same uh, size, right? The jump in conservative follower and followers for conservative accounts far outweighs the the dimension of the drop in followers for liberal accounts but it it absolutely is a trend that we're seeing i think one of the things that we have to attribute this to is elon musk saying that twitter is going to be a a a place for free speech, that if it's legal, it goes. Um, and that has really attracted the far-right elements who were leaving Twitter, or in many ways sometimes removed from Twitter, uh, for saying things like, you know, COVID is just a common cold, or calling, you know, the 2020 election into question, and things like that. So I think that explains a lot of the people who who you know, when Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter or Mike Lindell or some of these other figures, they went to other places, um, other social networks designed specifically for the far right and the right, um, you know, Telegram, 
gab parlor. Telegram is not designed for the right, by the way. I don't want to lump them in with with those others. Um, but you know, places like Gab and Parlor, where you know the, that is basically the audience, and this is being set up. And of course, Donald Trump now has his own Truth Social network, which uh, apparently is not going that well for him. But I think they started to come back to Twitter because they think, okay, Elon's going to do good for us. Elon's going to take care of us. We're going to be able to say all the racist and sexist and awful things that we want to say as soon as he takes over. I want to get back in, you know, early on. That's my best guess as to what has been happening. And that is supported by the trending, uh, the trending topics last week. Uh, reinstate Trump and make Twitter great again. I believe that that's what was happening. On the flip side, the smaller decrease in followers of liberal accounts, I think maybe a small portion of that can be attributed to uh, folks canceling their accounts. People say, you know, I'm going to delete Twitter now that this thing has happened. And, you know, I mean, I I look at it a lot like the I'm going to move to Canada if this person wins the election. If Trump wins, I'm going to Canada. (laughs) Yeah, you're not actually going to do that, you know. Elon wins, Um, I'm moving to parlor? Right. You know, I I think it is questionable what is going on on that side. I will say there's also been an interesting and related story that has come out uh, in the past few days that Twitter overstated the number of daily users on its service. Not once, not twice, but for three years straight, overcounting, according to The Verge, by up to 1.9 million users each quarter between the first quarter of 2019 and the fourth quarter of 2021. Wait, was that because of dummy accounts or was that intentional? Meaning, did they, they were, did they look at the data and say, OK, we have this many accounts, knowing that a certain percentage of those were dummy accounts or did they just lie? Which one was it? Twitter says that they counted multiple accounts tied to a single person as multiple people, even if the accounts weren't in use. And they say that's what inflated the accounts. I mean, if you go through Twitter, you know, there's plenty of people who maybe tweet once and then disappear because Twitter can be a very hostile or confusing place if you, you know, don't have a sense of how to how to use it. So Twitter is really just a complete mess right now. I mean, the company doesn't make money. They've accepted this deal and are going through the legal and financial processes to have Elon Musk take it over. There are workers at all levels, by the way, in in uh, in Twitter who are concerned. And I, I heard your, your kind of intro to this before. And many of the workers at Twitter are saying, okay, what do we do? If Elon Musk is taking over, can I manage to stay here and continue this work? Uh, And some folks are saying, you know, no, I'm not going to be able to. But Twitter has also told those workers, you know, you get stocks in place of a larger salary and you can't cash those stocks out until you've been here for four years. So they'd be leaving a lot of money on the table if they left. So there's a lot of different things at play when it comes to Twitter, but they're basically, I mean, my professional opinion, technical term, they're a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with your technical stance there, Chris. Uh, let me let me throw this at you. With the new announcement of the Ministry of Truth, uh, how, and that falling under Homeland Security, number one, I, I, I don't get. I think that's very... Strange. I'd have to noodle on that a little more. But um, seeing as we have now a ministry of truth and Elon is doing this big buy, the SEC, I mean, I would assume that the books at Twitter are all 
straight. You know, nothing's cooked. It should be good. Uh, apart from lying about their <laughs> user numbers. Uh, but apart from that, admittedly, they know they haven't really made any money except for 2018. Fine. How is this new disinformation governance board going to deal with Twitter? Do you think Elon Musk is going to go in there having to have this pre-conversation with Nina Jankowitz, who will sing her way through this meeting um, and let him know that these are the terms and conditions that you need to abide by in a backroom talk? Oh, oh I, I think there's going to be backroom talks. I think there's going to be congressional hearings. And I think that the hearings are going to get all the attention and they're going to do absolutely nothing because that's what happens every time Jack Dorsey or Sheryl Sandberg or Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos, any of these folks from Apple and Amazon and any of the big tech companies, Facebook, are, you know, drug and, you know, dragged in front of Congress. Nothing happens from it, right? They get a bunch of news coverage. They get embarrassed a little bit by, you know, somebody who's, uh, you know, looking for a political future, a bigger political future in, in Congress or in the White House. But nothing will happen with that. I think, yeah, when it comes to kind of the state apparatus, though, and the Department of Homeland Security overseeing what is considered truth, we also see Obama is even getting into this and talking about, right, misinformation. But look at who's talking about this misinformation. Obama is the one who said we have to bomb Libya to save civilians, and they destroyed Libya. I don't trust Obama to be talking about proper information or misinformation at all. So basically, I mean, yeah, the government has said, up this like depart the ministry of truth as you said and is going to be I, I think really trying to crack down on this and there could be a, a major conflict um but at the same time we see you know tesla is such a popular company and really you know that's what that's one of the things that uh musk you know is most well known for of course but also spacex has a you know, his other company has a really deep relationship with the U.S. government, in particular NASA, and through them, the defense industry. They're now, SpaceX is now launching a lot of the, the rockets and the satellites and things like that. In fact, just a, about a month ago, they launched rockets for the National Reconnaissance Office. And the NRO said, we're really proud we're using the Falcon rockets to, to launch these satellites because they're reusable. Look how green we are, basically. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very complicated web because Musk has all of these partnerships through his various businesses. But I think they're going to try to set an example of Musk uh, the first time something awful happens on or through Twitter, just like they've tried to set an example of Zuckerberg. And yet, you know, Zuckerberg is still making out there making millions and millions of dollars and, uh, you know, probably sleeps just fine at night. Oh, sure. Because he donates to both sides of the aisle. He owns the 435 people sitting in Congress. So that that's no doubt. But here's here's my my what I'm pondering, Chris, is that before, you know, our 1A, right, First Amendment is that the government cannot impede on our right to speech and, you know, thoughts and expression and all that. But now that we have a ministry of truth, how are they going to get around that without getting slapped with lawsuits all over the place, especially from the world's richest man, where if he says, OK, I'm taking Twitter private, now I can do and do whatever the hell I want. This is my my project like Tesla is, like SpaceX is. So I can do and say whatever the hell I want. This is my baby now. Thank you, Jack Dorsey. You can come back. You can, you know, be a chief troll over here. <laughs> and and how does the government get away with not getting slapped with a lawsuit? Because 
That's that's the one A. You're you're not supposed to have a ministry of truth because the government is not supposed to censor. Right. So that's I think that's a really great question, and I think a perspective that not a lot of people are talking enough about in this situation. Right. So the one of the ways they would do it is by attacking Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act, which basically says that private platforms like Twitter and Facebook are not responsible for the content that their users put up. And that's a good thing and should be defended because otherwise these platforms would have to be even worse with the censorship than they already are. And smaller platforms, smaller networks, or just individual blogs even run by one or two people would have to be really moderating everything that's going up there. But there's been this concerted move by Trump as well as by Joe Biden, we should mention. Biden is also not a fan of Section 230 protections, um, and it's getting a little bit of traction but not much in Congress to repeal or completely just change the way 230 protections work. Now, how would – how would this work from the government perspective is that Homeland Security would say, well, we need to put in protections for national security, right? Which is the example they always use. It's the excuse that they throw out every time. It's why we, you know, still have to take our shoes off at the airport and can't bring more than three ounces of toothpaste. You know, it's going to be a national security uh, mess, right? They're going to say, well, for reasons in national security, you can't talk about, you know, what, you, you know, what happened in Buka, right? You can't talk about uh, whatever it is that, you know, they don't want you talking about. Right. It's all going to fall under the Patriot Act, I think. Right. Some the the new Patriot Act, you know, whatever it is that they come up with, um, they're going to say it's, you know, we have to protect to get ourselves against Russia and China uh, because, you know, while we are in this you know, conflict, proxy conflict with Russia, you know, at the same time, the the media and the Pentagon and the think tanks are all gearing up for a major conflict with China, probably over Taiwan to start out with as, again, the proxy of the conflict. You know, my concern, um, Manila made the point about three drives. I want to add one more to it. Ideology. Basically, what does this person believe the world is and how does this person believe they should function within the context of that world? And oftentimes what you end up with is your ideology about what's right, what's a value, what you should be going for in regards to priorities. Sometimes it runs roughshod or runs headlong into environmental factors that basically work against the things that you're trying to get. In which case, the question becomes, OK, what is more important to you, your ideology or what you're basically trying to accomplish? And sometimes you can see this, like, for example, when Sanders decides to debate his opponent, even though Sanders is 60 points ahead, most people don't do that. But Sanders believes in this kind of democratic process. And so he would sit there and allow himself to basically be subjected to this particular debate, knowing that the only possible outcome in this debate is either he wins or he does something that is so irreparably bad that he basically loses. There is no win situation for him in that. He does it for purely ideological reasons. Same thing with this. You have a country that prides itself on the First Amendment. They pride itself on, we believe in freedom and democracy. We believe in a free press. And they'll pat themselves on the back about this whole free press stuff. By the same token, when that free press runs up against this notion of their competing narratives to the things that we're basically putting out, what does the government do? And in this case, it seems that their thing is we need to get rid of those sources of information that is challenging and contesting what we are saying. Screw the First Amendment. My fear about this is this an end run around the First Amendment. That the way this will work in practice is basically not so much that the government will say you can or can't do X or Y. These are private companies. And in the context of these being private companies, they can, of course, take, let's say, guidance 
from the government on an issue or another issue, which is basically what they've been doing all along. Like I said, getting rid of Telesur, getting rid of Palestinian sites, getting rid of Press TV, knocking away RT, putting the label of Russian agent or whatever on the various accounts, even when those people are still not necessarily associated with RT. They've been doing this all the way through, putting, let's say, warnings or various links in order to dig or undermine the ability for those particular links and stories to span. Facebook, Twitter, all of these guys have basically been doing it. Who cares about free speech? Shadow ban. Shadow ban. That's is, another one. Is censoring speech. Or ghost ban. Or the, you know. So I guess my point is this notion of freedom and democracy and free press and all of this other stuff just seems to be over with, providing that the people are running in line with the state, which many of those people at the Press Correspondence Center were doing. And so how do you think this is going to get used in practice? Do you think my fears here are correct that many of these media organizations are just going to look at this disinformation board and use that as a, let's say, a guiding light for what they consider to be legit or non-legit? And even maybe even get to the point where Section 230 starts to get associated with the board itself, allowing this kind of weird hand um, government private partnership, this kind of fascist, fascistic partnership between the two on this notion of the various information. So even though the government is not doing it in practice or let's say in a hard, heavy-handed way, it is still getting the exact same effect that it would get otherwise if these two organizations were basically combined, public and private sector. What is your thought on that? Do you think I'm, I'm overblown in my fears on this? No, I think we're already there. If you, we look at it, we are already there. Look at the number of accounts that have been shut down on Twitter and Facebook for speaking an alternative view to the U.S. government and NATO on Russia, on Syria, Libya, you know, those who have been shut down for speaking out against police brutality or against corruption. It's already here. We've learned in the past week that the PayPal accounts for both Mint Press News and Consortium News have been shut down. And in the case of Consortium News, they've got uh, a lot of money in there that is going to be held for up to 180 days and then maybe returned to Consortium News. And that that is chilling to me, that PayPal can say, without explanation, we don't like what your account's been doing. We're not going to tell you what it is we don't like. We just don't like what your account's been doing. And so we're going to hold on to the money that you have raised while, by the way, they were doing, you know, gearing up for their, um, you know, their spring fundraiser. So we are already there. We're not, you know, it's going to get worse if we don't do anything about it. But we're already in this situation. And I don't think we can downplay and, you know, we sh- I don't think we should downplay how bad it's already been because we think, you know, we think or know that it's it could get significant. Worse. These companies are doing the bidding of the State Department and the CIA and all of the intelligence agencies because that's how those partnerships work. That in this so called democracy, the US government doesn't need to be shutting down these services because other companies will do that work for them. That is my big fear. Yeah. Um, I, how do you think this turns out? And do you think this is a situation where Twitter? or Musk um, is going to run roughshod against this. And by the way, you know, when we think about it, billionaires at this point own, what, the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, Bloomberg News, Bloomberg, Elon Musk, in this case, social media. And we must understand that these, at this point, are our commons. This is the way in which we communicate with one another. This is not somebody standing in Washington, D.C., screaming at the height of their lungs. Trust me, there are those people there, people who um, do a whistle every morning as I'm driving by, can't stand that guy, but that guy's out there, right? Uh, But no, this is, as a technological society, 
our ability and to speak to one another, engage with one another, is put through an electronic medium, for better or for worse. And if it was a situation where we own the commons in this case, that's one thing that would make sense. But that's not the way our society evolved on this stuff. This stuff is going through private enterprises. So this kind of weird um, attempt or this kind of weird dance is taking place where we're trying to figure out, okay, what is this going to look like in practice going forward? And I don't know what that looks like yet. From your standpoint, what do you think this ends up being as it, I don't know, settles down, if settles down is even something that it would basically happen? But what do you think this ends up looking like after, let's say, within a year, two years, five years, when it's all said and done and this presidency is basically over with? Yeah, I I think this does really become a battle for the control of the flow of information in the sense that it becomes a struggle to reclaim in some ways the common space that we need, right? We the media is owned by fewer and fewer companies and fewer and fewer people. And of course, they are all wealthy. They are all uh, doing the work of the U.S. government. And at the same time, we do have a growing independent media sector like this show, like you know my own podcasts, and all of that. And we're seeing you know the growth, but we're also seeing uh, the you know the shutdowns and the oppression of an independent media, not by the government directly, but by the companies that they rely on. This is going to turn into a battle for the ability to share information and to make. Things like Twitter and Reddit and Facebook, public property rather than private property. Public property that we can control, we can maintain uh, as, as the people who use it, not as billionaires who own it. To make them to make themselves money on advertising, that's where this is going to be going. Chris, I, I think I trust that even less. The idea of like, <laughs> let's say Homeland Security running Twitter. I think I trust the government less than I trust. Elon Musk. I mean, I don't know. It, there's a lot. There's a lot to it, right? We need to have. We need to. As part of that fight is open, uh, you know, people-based oversight and management of it, not you know, homeland security management. So it it is. It seems a little far-fetched. I know that, but I think it is a goal that we need to be looking at this entire system, frankly, right, and saying, no, we we don't want Elon Musk owning this, but we don't want Homeland Security controlling it. So what do we have to change in this entire system to make that happen? That is a fascinating question. And yeah, I don't know the answer. That is a fight, right? I mean, the mainstream media up until the point of, let's say, social media had complete control and dominance over the narrative that was basically put out to the American public. And it puts you in the mind of radio and the disruptive effect of radio had on society where people had to get accustomed to, hey, this person is talking in my ear. There's a voice in There's this box. There's a voice in this box. There's no way they're going to lie to me at all. <laughs> it becomes that, right? And it takes a while. You have FDR and you have Goebbels. And both of these guys are speaking in the microphone, saying different things and having um, their effects. But in this case, with social media, you get this kind of weird thing also where mainstream media gets to put out two basic narratives and the public kind of vacillates between those narratives. Then you get social media and that stuff differentiates all through the political spectrum and it creates a certain destabilizing effect from the people in power who don't like it. And it seems that there was a push to basically control it. Uh, One last um, question before we go. Jack Dorsey. So um, Wall Street Journal is reporting that Jack Dorsey whispered, quote unquote, in Elon Musk's ear that social media platform ought to be private company. And basically was pushing him to do the deal. There was also talk with Jack Dorsey basically you know, coming out with comments 
edging Elon Musk on. And behind the scenes, the people were telling Joycey to shut up, basically, and like, stop backing that guy. Stop making these comments about the platform. Didn't matter. The fact that the former CEO is coming out, giving Elon Musk all of these accolades and telling him to go forward and to get the company and everything else. What was going on behind the scenes with Dorsey in this? I am fascinated by this because uh, uh, Manila made the point that says he looked like a battered man when he came <laughs> later on. Like he looks like growing the, the COVID beard. He looked a bit haggardly and all of this other stuff. What was going on with Dorsey to get him to back Musk so fervently? I'm very curious about that. Do you know? Dorsey says that he he defends and stands for the platform of Twitter, not necessarily the company, but of course it's the company right now that defines what the platform is. So it's the, the idea of, you know, this, having this interoperable, this network, this worldwide network where people can talk and share ideas. I mean, Dorsey, you know, is this classic techno libertarian, right? Where it's like, oh, we're going to have this, this amazing network and we're going to make some money off of it. And it's going to free the world when we don't have to be concerned about pesky things like, you know, harassment or, you know, policy and stuff like that. We're just going to use the technology without thinking about it. Um, and, oh, we're going to make ourselves some billions of dollars in <laughs> the meantime. That's where I think that's exa- that's where Dorsey was coming from in his support for Musk. And you know what? Maybe he wants a place on the board later on, too. Interesting. Chris, thank you for this, man. I really appreciate this conversation. It, it was I missed questions last time that you were here and there were stuff that, you know, people wanted to know. And you look great interview. Thank you, my man. Chris Garafa is editor of Tech for the People and co-host of Reboot Podcasts. You can find him also on Twitter at CMG. You guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas, Manila Chan, we'll be taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Back in a moment. Faultlines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we're taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. Starting off, like Manila said, it won't be a show without Tarif. New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? How are you doing this morning? Thank you all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free you on the signs. I have a couple of comments. First comment is this. The three hundred billion dollars of the uh, with the the West half of Russia assets assets actually stole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, come to find out, Russia have close to five hundred billion dollars worth of Western assets and sitting over there in Russia. And um, the rumor is like if they start taking Russian um, assets in the West, you know, government, you know, gas promise and the all, you know, people with money, or, you know, people with their money over here invested. And Russia's going to retaliate and take that 500 billion for themselves. That's in Russia. Well, because, you know, Biden was trying to get the access. It, yeah, you're right, Tariq. Biden was trying to get this capability of basically stealing Russian property. And we're not even necessarily talking about government property. He was like, oh, we're going to take money from oligarchs, and we're going to take this, and we're going to take that. And we're going to give that money to Ukraine. He was trying to do that. So, of course, Russia looked at that and said, well, if you can do that, and if you are going to do that, basically stealing property of any random Russian then we can do the same thing in kind. And it's kind of hard to disagree with them on that, right? I mean, think about what that means in context. 
the United States and the wars that we've been involved in, whether we're talking about in South America, whether we're talking about the Middle East, the wars or the coups that we've been involved in, what if those countries said, well, because the U.S. has done this and because this has destabilized our government and hurt our government, we are going to start taking U.S. assets um, in order and compensation for doing so. Now, nobody has said that. The closest that we came to that is probably when Saudi Arabia, when those families were trying to sue Saudi Arabia and Obama was like, no, I'm not going to let you do that because that basically opens us to potential lawsuits also for our foreign policy escapades. So, yeah, Tarif, you're right. What else, my man? Two more, yeah, two more comments. Second comment about that um, um, assistant program that they're trying to pass a $33 billion Excuse me, that program where if it, that bill passed, if a chemical, biological, nuclear attack occurs... Oh, the AUMF. Authorization of military force. If that passed, that it, that, that it will be a sad day, so that means everybody needs to start protesting like crazy to make sure that bill's not... Tarif, that's, let's clarify, though. Let's clarify. Adam Kinzinger's proposal for that bill on the AUMF is totally separate than the gajillions of dollars that we have already approved to send, approved with lightning speed to send to Ukraine. This AUMF, not because there is actually a threat of biological or chemical weapons by the Russian Federation. He just wants to put it out there just because, because it's fun. Yes, yes. Trying to, well, the thing is this. It's a kamikaze thing. It's going to take us down with them because if troops land there, I mean, it is it, just telling you how desperate the deep state is because just remember last week, the Russian will tie the uh, ruble to gold and other commodities, right? And then this week, here we go with this, this bill talking about putting U.S. troops there just in case three things happen in um, Ukraine, like we just discussed, biological, chemical, and nuclear. Right now, I just let you know the deep state is desperate. They just showed their hand by coming up with that bill. And hopefully it don't pass. we got to make sure it don't pass. Well, the problem is, if you think of Biden, Biden has basically put all of his political capital into a, an objective that will never be ascertained, which is Russia needs to pull back from Ukraine. That's not going to happen. They're gonna, they've already just taken those areas for all intents and purposes. The weapons and everything else is just prolonging this particular conflict. Right. And also, let's be very clear, too. If there is a false flag and that bill has passed, what does that mean? Meaning, in the same way we had this thing with Syria, where the OPCW basically comes out and comes up with this farcical story, where the various people who are actually there on the ground contest the story. And what does media do? Ignore it. They run with the white helmet. They run with the white helmets. And so it's like, oh, this is a chemical weapon strike. Donald Trump fires missiles into Ukraine. No investigation had taken place. And all of these guys basically lump on one side. In me- Syria. In Syria, yeah. The media completely ignores the opposition basically coming out saying we were on the ground. We were part of the OCW. None of that happened. None of that happened. This is what we encountered. And so it's like, how do you ignore that claim? There was a chemical weapon strike, then use that as a pretext in order to attack a country. And now we're having the same kind of conversation that we're having here. If there's a chemical weapon strike, should we, A-U-M-F. maybe we need to get involved. A-U- A- we got it. We got it signed right here. That's yep. your signature, right? Yeah. That means we're going to war. Tarif, we're going to war. It is disturbing. And I agree with you. These guys have gotten closer and closer to the brink of oblivion, and he is still edging that way. And I know some people are saying, oh, we're not going to get involved in that. You don't know that. Sometimes the president gets himself wrapped into these kind of political headwinds where he has lacks the ability to basically 
back up because he doesn't necessarily want to lose face because he's put so much political capital on one very specific policy. This is very dangerous. And it puts you in the mind of the Vietnam War. The anti-never-Trumper guy yep. who <laughs> now he's butting heads ideologically with Noam Chomsky. Think about that. How weird is that? What kind of world am I living in? Chomsky comes out. Look, and it's weird, right? Because I think I even gave that uh, monologue where I say, hey, Trump was the better choice in regards to this conflict. Yeah. Um, If you're talking about how do we prevent lives from being lost? How do we prevent all of these people basically from dying? How do we prevent gas prices from going through the roof? When you ask, how do you prevent all of that? It begins and ends at whether or not you'll be willing to negotiate over the security concerns, real, legitimate, yeah. genuine security concerns of Russia that we would also have in the exact same situation. We got we got one more caller. Thank you, Tarif. It's never a show without you, buddy. Uh, let's head over to Adam in Virginia. Hello, Adam. Yes, hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. And I also am deeply concerned about this mission creep and getting us involved into a hot zone and just continually pumping weapons into it like it it won't have consequences. And I'm thinking historically how it's rhyming with, for example, remember the main? Well, it's on a lie. And uh, the Brits did the same thing a year later. So remember the main was 1898, 1899. The British found some excuse to declare war on the Boer republics in South Africa because really they wanted control of the gold and diamonds in that region. Um, and scarily also, when the warmongers are in key positions, that's really how the maelstrom that created the Great War happened. It is. And remember the main, that's the Spanish-American War, correct? This was the one with the newspaper basically generated from, you know, they, they found out later on that it was just the boat itself exploded because of things that were on it. But they acted as if Spain attacked that ship and the media basically ran with it in order to create this image that this was basically taking place and we were under attack and we needed to get involved in all this other stuff. Is that what you're talking about? I just want to make sure that's what you're referring to. That is precisely the one. It, uh, the uh, sensational journalism of the time, uncorroborated, just made all of the accusations that Spain was responsible for it and got the public consent. Adam, thank you, my man. I appreciate that call. And look, he's right. I mean, the reason why I get so animated about the responsibility of media, and yeah, I do look at it with this kind of schoolboy philosophy way, that the job is to contextually explain the world in a way that people can understand and make rational choices. And by rational choices that are in their best interest, not necessarily choices that are gamed um, by let's say, giving them a view of the world in order to push them in a particular direction. And like um, Elijah said, we are responsible in some way from the standpoint of media. How we present our world gets people into a position for them to make a decision, or for that matter, how we don't present that world also puts them in a position to make a decision. It's just oftentimes against their own interests and in the interests of people who are presenting those narratives. People with these microphones, literally, it's a megaphone into the world out there, have a duty to present the truth, but I, I... I think most people with these microphones are derelict in their duties and their omission of the actual events happening on the ground. They're like, well, I didn't say that. Precisely. The fact that you didn't say it is the problem. problem. Yep. And that's the world we're living in. And then, then the, the tech giants just corroborate with the U.S. government so the U.S. government doesn't have to get their hands dirty. They just, they use their goons in Silicon Valley to do the dirty work and then just say, Oh, well, that's a private company. We don't, the U.S. government doesn't censor. But now we've got a department just to censor. Right, (laughs) right. So rest assured, folks, 
It's it's coming. Don't worry. They're censoring to protect your free speech. They're going to censor to help you know what you need to know. That's right. That's it. And say it correctly in a way that, you know, doesn't challenge any particular narrative. It's so dystopian. Like, it's hard to get across how dystopian that is. Nina Jankowitz says that she's a big fan of musicals. Imagine if it's like, she's like, okay, from henceforth, you have to sing your way to make everything lovely and wonderful. <laughs> right. And like, as we like, eliminate wait, content that challenges the narrative of the story. And I we're mean, like, oh my God, we have to walk around singing to each other? Like, wait, what? This is utterly disastrous. Like, that's the world we're heading into. Your country is basically getting closer and closer to the brink of oblivion. We are perched at the edge of an abyss. And all things being equal, the, it, the edifice in our society that is supposed to be there to say, hey, this is a bad idea. This is going to have consequences. Your president is getting closer and closer to the brink. And there's a historical context for this. No, out to lunch. Out to lunch. That is dramatically bad. Bizarre world. No yes. Chomsky likes Trump now. And we oh, have a brain shock. <laughs> but look, I want to thank all of you guys for watching. Excellent show. I want to thank our engineer, producer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. My name is Jamal Thomas. You all have a phenomenal day. And we'll see you in the morning. Thanks for watching. Bye, Rumblers. Fault lines.